0: السلام عليكم ورحمة الله بالله من الشيطان وقال لهم نبيهم إن آيت ملكه أي يأتيكم التابوت فيه من in a feeder, Nicola, a teller, come in, come to Mumineen. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen, was a lot of salam, Allah say the Enbiyah, you Wa ala Alihi was a happy Hijmain, thumb, Amma Bad. This is Ayah number two hundred and forty eight of Surah Al If you recall, the last conversation was about Talut and his appointment. and how the criteria for choosing him was discussed extensively, that the primary reason for, his, for which he's been chosen in is inna allah alaykum. Allah has chosen him over you, there's no room for you to discuss it. But in case you are too blind to see it, Fil Wal Jism. That Allah has given him more capacity, and he's opened up for him, both in terms of knowledge and physical ability. Then on top of that, Allah Azza uh, gave a validation. And this is important on many levels. So the, the few things I'll talk to you about today, the first of them is of course that these are the Muslims of that time. The conversation is happen- happening between the Prophet of their time, which the Bible calls Samuel, and you know the Talut, his name is Saul. But the Prophet that they're talking to, who gave them this news, his name is Samuel. In the, the his, He's not mentioned by name in Quran. Alayhi hey, The people that are talking to him obviously believe in him. That's why they came to him. And they... You know, uh, even Allah calls him Yuhum. he's their prophet. And that's why they came to him for religious validation. The thing is, when in the Quran you will find when prophets talk to non believers, then non believers ask for a miracle. Believers don't ask for a miracle. That's not the standard for believers, that is the standard for non believers. Why? Because non believers are skeptical of a prophet, they don't have any real confidence in what he has to say so they have to be convinced through something amazing to see but these people are even though they are in the shell of believers allah azza wa jalla actually highlights the fact that deep down inside they don't believe because they needed in fact a miracle to see which is pretty telling about them the only one case the only one case where you find that believers asked for a miracle Is the followers of Isa alayhi salam. They asked for a miracle. They asked for a table spread from the sky. You know? And when they asked for that, Isa alayhi salam got extremely angry. Even though they're good people, they're good sahaba. I mean, they're called al hawariyun, they're talked about highly in the Quran. But Allah made sure to mention that passage. And even in that passage, when they asked for a miracle, Isa alayhi salam's first response was, "It have taqwa Allah. What are you saying? Why was Isa Alayhi Salaam saying that? Because he is the last messenger to Bani Israel. And Bani Israel from the very beginning has been seeing miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. miracle. And he knows there are no more prophets coming from Bani Israel. He's the last of them. Because the one one that will come after him is from Bani Ismail, not from Bani Israel. So he says, you people haven't left your ways until now. What's the matter with you people? Fine, Allah said, I'm sending it, even to these people. But then the ayah that came, the ayah that came for them was, it is probably, without, in my studies of all these years, I don't know of any ayah in the Quran that is more difficult, more harsh than that ayah. If, if anybody disbelieves after this ayah, after I send the table spread from the sky, then I am going to, no doubt about it, torture him with a torture that I have never tortured anybody else ever in any nation with. Why? Because they asked for a miracle. Now why is Allah so angry for them asking for a miracle? These are the ayat that tell us why. Because in the history of Bani Israel, they asked for miracles after believing in a Prophet. How could you do that? But there's a bigger social picture to understand. When this miracle arrives, whatever this miracle is, and we'll talk about that in a second, when this miracle comes, they're not the only ones who will see it. The others who will see it will be the entire population. And you remember how they themselves, they're the ones that have the political power, and they are only coming to the Messenger, the Prophet, for religious validation. But if the miracle comes and everybody sees it, then everybody's behind the Prophet's decision and they lose their political you know, maneuvering to be able to go against that decision. Because everybody's on the same page now. The entire population says, You didn't see the miracle? Are you disbelieving in the miracle? Then they can't, they can't say anything anymore. So they could hide their kufr, which they have clearly. They can hide their disbelief. But after this miracle, they couldn't do so anymore. So, so now, what is this miracle? Their prophet said to them, Inna Ayata that the miraculous sign of his valid kingdom. Whose valid kingdom? Talut. That talut is legitimately your king, your governor, your general in the army. And ya'tiyakumut tabut. That without any difficulty, the chest will come back to you. Now what in the world is this chest tabut? You'll notice words that come from the Semitic languages into Arabic they'll take this form. Dawood, Jalud, Tabut, Tahoud. There's a particular form that they follow. This word, as opposed to sunduk, which is the Arabic word. Tabut is a chest, but the word in its origin is actually from the Hebrew language. And Tabut is a large chest that they used to have. It was part of the history of Bani Israel. They say that they, even nowadays, many variations of the Orthodox uh, Judaism believe that it actually still exists. Some of them believe that it exists in the foundation of Al-Aqsa. And some of their extreme movements, they actually wish to one day demolish Aqsa so they can find the chest. And so some of the, uh, d- the dome of the rock and all of it, they want to tear it down and find this chest. They have a lot of like uh, uh, affinity towards this chest of theirs. Now what is inside this chest? They say it has the Asa, the staff of Musa in it, Adi salam. They say that, you know, the tablets that were revealed, that were then broken, the tablets are inside there. You, what used to come down for them in the desert, manna and salwa, right? And then, so salwa is the bird, but man at least were the seeds. So they had a bag of seeds that's just as a reminder of what Allah used to send for them from the sky. So they have a bag of that in there. So they have things from the, uh, reminders from the time of Musa and Harun alayhi salam. Now this almost became their qibla for a long time. They would keep it in front of them when they would pray, the full congregational prayer. When they would offer sacrifices, they would keep it in front of them. When the entire population would travel, they would have the first you know, caravan, lots of animals. The first animal would have this in front for like blessing purposes. So they had this very strong emotional attachment to this one thing. You can think of it like hijar aswad for us. You can think of it like that. It's got a lot of value to us because the Prophet ﷺ gave it value, right? And it was near and dear to him. So, and you know, through him, it's near and dear to us. Now, imagine the Hijr Aswad is stolen. What happened was when these people were, when they were, they were invaded. The Israeliyun were invaded many times. Banu Israel were taken over many times. And when they were at war with some of the Mushrikun, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, it so happens that the tabut was taken as a symbol of further humiliation. It was taken from them. And they took it to Iraq, wherever they took it. And now they have no chance of seeing it again. Because these people are, we already let, وَأَبْنَائِنَا We've been taken out of our homes. Our sons have been taken from us. We have no power. Give us a general so we can fight back. So they have no hope of getting this chest back. You know? Now it so happens that Allah جل, in this ayah says the, the sign of the kingdom, the legitimate kingdom of talut is going to be that the chest will come back on its own to you. You won't have to fight to get it back, it'll come back on its own. Now, how in the world is it going to come back on its own? Now, by the way, ja'ay when something comes with a struggle, something big comes, something comes through difficulty, when something comes easy, smooth, no problem, then atayati, and yatiya kumuttabut. It won't even come with a struggle. It'll just stroll right back to you. Now it so happened the Mushrikun that had it, Allah Azza wa Jal made it, so wherever they put it, a disaster would happen. A disease would strike, lightning would strike, an earthquake would happen. They would move the chest, some other disease starts, some other lightning, earthquake, hurricane problems. These mushrikun started believing that the box is what? Is cursed. So they decided we have to have a solution. They took the chest and they put it in a, on a on a cart, like a bullock cart. Right, so the bull is pulling the cart And they put it on the cart And they, without a driver They just let it go where it goes We don't want to deal with it And it actually strolled back Right to Bani Israel Allah Azza wa guided it Right back to them So it came back to them miraculously And Fihi In it there is tranquility Peace that comes to you from your master So the, the, that tabut that comes to you Will give you what? Sakina. Some miraculous way of giving you Sakina. What are they getting ready for? They're getting ready for war They're getting ready for war You will notice In the, in the, time, the, the most difficult times of war That are described in the Quran Allah Azza wa Jal will talk about sakina and Itminanul Quloob He'll talk about it in this passage He'll talk about it in Anfal. He'll talk about it in Surah al Over and over and over again Same thing over and over again You know? When he talks about it in Ali imran when the Uhud is talked about, same thing comes up again. Allah is saying that the believers, when they are put in that situation, the most important weapon that they will need to be able to be victorious will be Sakina. If they don't have Sakina, they cannot, they cannot succeed. One of the worst instances of battle in the life of the Prophet is Uhud. Things got really bad. And now when things got really bad, Allah جل, and, and Allah describes, look, you need to regain your sakina, like I gave you before. The sahaba before Badr, now Uhud is talked about, but Allah reminds them about Badr. Remember what I did for you at Badr? Well, what did he do for us at Badr? He made us fall asleep. يَغْشَى عَلَيْكُمْ نُعَاسًا There was a, a peaceful sleep that you just passed out dozed off that took over a group among you so when you woke up it was like the best power nap you ever had <laughs> and you were like you were tearing it up in the battlefield so now fihi sakinatu min rabbikum wa min ma taraka al musa wa ahlu harun malaika and it has remains of what the family of harun and the family of musa their descendants what they've been preserving for all this time it's carrying all of those things in it the remains the some remnants of their their beautiful legacy you know, they say some Some even say it had the ring of Sulaiman in it, so things like that inside it. Tahmiluhul malaika, angels are carrying it. It also means it will come back to you as carried by angels, meaning there's some you know, unseen, unvisualized un, 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 uh, angelic protection and guidance of the bullock cart that's bringing it back to you. Taḥmiluhu malaika, it's actually angels carrying it. Inna fi and by the way, by the way, in ancient times, if you see. Even people carrying, going in a caravan with riders, they will get robbed. Now, if a, a cart is going by with an animal and merchandise in the back without a rider, there, what chances are they going to cross through multiple lands and not get robbed? Subhanallah. That's why taḥmiluhul-mala'ika is important. Angels are carrying it. ذلك, then at the end of it, inna dalika la in mu'minin in all of that there truly is a miraculous sign for you if in fact you've been believers if in fact you've been believers in other words the word in the word in here is a pretty strong pretty stern indication that they aren't actually believers in kuntum mu'minin you know and their iman has their iman is not what it should, it's supposed to be so the best of them the, the and the worst of them are being given a pretty stern you know a uh, reminder through in kuntum mu'minin you know now this kind of language is also used in another battle situation it's used in uhud and there allah says wa antumul in kuntum don't worry don't don't lose heart don't be grieved you are going to you are supreme if in fact you've been believers and there allah gave a different reality and that was looks in Uhud, things went really bad, but still, the fact that even after the battle is over and you have lost some key Sahaba and the Prophet was almost killed, وسلم, you before this battle had something, and after this battle have something that the enemy never had and will never have, which is what? Iman. Iman. And because of your Iman, whether you win or lose, you are always going to be supreme. Antumul you If you have Iman. If you have Iman. Now everybody else fights a battle. And they fight a battle and they say, we win if we gain territory, we lose if we don't gain territory. If we survive, then we've won. If we, get, if we kill the other, we've won. If they kill us, then we've lost. But the believer's attitude towards what does it mean to survive, what does it mean to succeed, is different. It actually is a matter of iman. If we went in with iman, and it, by the end of it, we still had iman, or we died with iman, either way, ihdal الْحُسْنَيَنِ like Surah al calls it, one of the two most beautiful things that can happen. Those, that's the attitude of a believer. Why this is important? Is because then our attitude, our, our, our mentality isn't about what we will gain in dunya. We will put our best efforts in dunya, but our expectations will always be in the akhirah. And our efforts, the purpose of our efforts is to further iman. The purpose of our efforts is not to further dunyawi things. Subhanallah. This is an un, unparalleled balance that no other nation has either people do things only for the akhirah or people do things, or they only think about spiritual things or they only think about worldly things our religion makes us do the best worldly things while only interested in the other worldly things it makes us it expects excellence in both subhanallah it's a very powerful Attitude that brings about goodness in this world and goodness in the next. So, with that, Inshallah, Taala, I conclude today's ayah discussion. Barakallahu fil Qur'an al-Hakim wa wa bil-ayati wa hakim wa wa And then another ayah came just to justify, from Allah's perspective, give a miracle was given to them to, to substantiate that this, in fact, is the prophet that they're supposed to be given, and a sign of it was a small victory. And this is something I want to begin with today The, the sign given to them That there, there was a chest, a box that they had In which there were the remains of the remnants Some of the, you know, the, the, the uh, uh, artifacts From the time of Musa alayhi salam And of Harun's family and their family It had the, the Asa, the staff of Musa alayhi salam it had some of the, you know, uh, some say it had parchments of the Torah or even the tablet that was revealed, things like that, or even a bit of manna and salwa, as I mentioned before, just the, the, the man, you know, the, the, the grain that, used to, that Allah used to reveal to them in the desert so they could survive. So they had a bag of that in there just to remind them how Allah helped them. So they had these things that they valued a lot, right? Uh, and in it also, fihi in it there's a tranquility to you that comes to you from your master. Inside that there's a lesson I didn't mention last time And that is from the Sha'ir of Allah It's not impermissible for Muslims to have a souvenir Or a reminder of something that, you know, that brings back feelings and memories It's not evil to do that, it's not haram to do that, it's not wrong to do that Right. So what kinds of souvenirs do we have? For example, in the Muslim world we have historical sites Right, so you go and you travel, and you go to ancient cities like you know, you know, you go to like Syria and may Allah preserve the people there and protect them. And how many historical sites there have been damaged? But it's a beautiful ancient place, right? If you go to Damascus, if you go to you know places like Morocco and Maghreb and other places, you'll see the construction of the Muslims and how they built roads and streets in ancient times, even well ahead of their time. And it, even that gives you a sekina; it gives you a kind of reminder. Similarly, it's hard to feel that when you go to the Haramain now. Right, the haram itself is a sakina for us Just looking at it And looking at Hijr Aswad gives, gives you a feeling Just being near where the water of Zamzam comes out Gives you a feeling, right But the rest of it now is marble and concrete So it's hard to get a feeling Right, and now they have for example Tours in al-Masjid al-Nabawi Where the, the, the guides can actually tell you Okay, this beam or this beautiful arch right here That we're walking through al-Masjid al-Nabawi This used to be the house of this sahabi And that used to be the house of that sahabi And you can't really get a feel for that When you're walking through Because it's all like really elaborate construction. But back in the day, there was this element of, you know, so you see their house and it, it would move you to tears. The rawda is like that. We see the rawda and we cry. Right? We even get close to the rawda and there's a feeling, there's a sense, you know. It, it overwhelms you. You know, al janat al-Baqir is like that when you go there. Right? So there are things around us that can give us those kinds of feelings. And they had a collection of those things. You can imagine this was their walking, or this was their traveling museum of you know, things that build iman. You see it and you get, like your iman rises. Now the misuse of those things is, the, the purpose of them is you see them and you remember Allah's favor upon you. And you remember the good people before you. The misuse of those things, when a nation becomes ignorant, is that they actually turn those things almost into objects of worship. And they turn those things that are supposed to be, you know, uh, artifacts that remind us of Allah and make us feel closer to Allah, those objects themselves become somehow sacred, you know? And they start getting a value more than they actually deserve. And this is a kind of, you know, taking something that was meant to have a good purpose and then redirecting it into something that has a bad purpose, right? So how do you stop yourself from doing that? The answer to that is very simple. The answer to that is, if an overwhelming majority of Muslims is uneducated in Islam, if they have very little, basic, even basic knowledge of Islam, then it's better not to fall, not to open the door to those kinds of artifacts, because the few mature people will have know the right way to deal with them, and the vast majority of immature people in their faith might actually end up corrupting their iman because of those things. Right? So today we're at a point where the average Muslim, you know, subhanAllah, average Muslims have very little knowledge of Islam. And actually in many cases, especially in the Western world, many generations of Muslims don't have that much more knowledge than non-Muslims of Islam. It's pretty sad, but it's a reality. Now in this kind of reality, when you even introduce the smallest artifacts, then it can be the chances of it being misused are far greater than the chances of it being used appropriately. So as a public health concern... It's, no, it's in, in, at an individual level it may not even be wrong to do so but just as a concern for the rest of the Muslim society it may become a problem right so what, what, are, what times are we living in now people go to the haram and they take a pair of scissors with them and they hide them in their haram somehow very creatively and then they get near the, the, the Kaaba and what do they do they rip out a piece of the, you know, the Kaaba, and then they put it in a glass thing, and then they put it like in their house, and they, you know, weirdly enough, they put it in the direction in which they're going to pray, and it's like, uh, it gets kind of creepy. Like, what are you doing? It's a piece of cloth. You know, <laughs> this is not this is not a healthy attitude. That's not something we're supposed to do. You know, <coughs> now seeing the hilaf of the Kaaba, even the one that was used from the previous years, just seeing it and remembering where it's been and how fortunate this piece of cloth is and all. Fine, you know what? Those are healthy feelings. No problem. But for a good number of people, unfortunately, the ignorance is spread to the point where even the Masha'ir of Allah, that are, or the sha'air of Allah, that are maintained by Allah Himself, like Maqam Ibrahim. Maqam Ibrahim is a place you see it, you're supposed to cry. You're supposed to remember Allah, remember the sacrifices of Ibrahim remember the origins of this house. You know how they have these beautiful university buildings, and they have uh, like an, a, a, a monument in front, Right, or a statue and this building is dedicated to blah 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 and they have a history of that building or something like that right? or they'll have this for monuments well what is, our, what is the landmark at the Kaaba? It's, it's Maqam Ibrahim and it reminds you how this house was built and how it came about right? but when you go there for Hajj now you'll find some dude like holding it and hugging it and rubbing his clothes on it and it just gets, it's like what are you doing? this is not what this was for you know so subhanAllah, if even the, the place where you're supposed to have the most protected form of tawheed, even there we're not able to preserve it, then there is a problem in the ummah that should be recognized and it should be taken into consideration when giving things other, these kinds of things value. Or maybe more value than should be given to them, you know? So anyhow, this this was a tangent that I thought it was important to bring up, because you know the, these cultural practice unfortunately do exist. They're very common, and it's not just simple, easy enough to just tell people it's haram or it's wrong, or you know I'm not even going to pass that fatwa anyway. But it's you know it can be problematic for your faith in the long run, right? So now the army moves forward, and this is a lot of uh, hadith, meaning Allah mentions that this is the sign that Talut is going to be the general. And then there's no explanation what happens next. So they finally agreed. Then they put an army together. Then they brought the finances of the army together. Then it took a while to discipline that army. None of that's mentioned. <laughs> فمن شرب منه فليس مني، وَمَن لَمْ يَطْعَمْهُ فَإِنَّهُ مِنِّي وَمَن لَمْ يَطْعَمْهُ فَإِنَّهُ مِنِّي إِلَّا مَنْ اغْتَرَفَ غُرْفَةً بِيَدِهِ. فَشَرِبُوا مِنْهُ إِلَّا قَنِيلًا مِنْهُمْ فَلَمَّا جَاوَزَهُ هو وَالَّذِينَ آمَنُوا مَعَهُ قَالُوا لَا تَا لنا الْيَوْمَ بِجَالُوتَ وَجُنُودِهِ قَالَ الَّذِينَ يَظُنُّونَ أَنَّهُمْ مُلَاقُوا اللَّهِ كم من not sure غلبت you are بإذن الله والله مع الصابرين اللهم اجعلنا مع الصابرين رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري sure if من لساني not قولي فالحمد لله رب العالمين sure والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وَعَلَىٰ uh, ta'ala, today I'll be discussing lessons from ayah number 249 of Surah Al-Baqarah For those of you that haven't been following along, this is a conversation, a passage that deals with a very powerful account from the history of Bani Israel uh, They had a prophet who uh, Allah Azza wa revealed to them uh, that they didn't really pay much attention to until they needed his help in figuring out who should be the leader. So, in previous ayat, they came to this Prophet and said, Ib'ath lana malika nuqatil fi sabilillah. Appoint a general for us, appoint a king for us so we can fight in Allah's path. And so the Prophet appoints this king for them, meaning revelation comes that Talut among the people should be the general. Then they complain that Talut should not be the general because he's not very wealthy and not very famous or whatever, you know min uh, Their complaint was he hasn't been given much in terms of wealth, and then he was justified even further by Allah's Prophet that no, actually this is Allah's choice. In Allah wazadahu baslatan wal Actually, he's been given quite a bit in terms of knowledge and in terms of physical ability. He's the right guy for the job. So this is Talut. Immediately we go straight to the point. When Talut went way out there along with the, with the armies. In other words, multiple battalions. Junud is important because the tribe, Bani Israel is not one tribe, there are multiple tribes. And each tribe has a limited army. So they have limited resources and they come together and don't form a jund, but rather junud, the plural. So multiple armies have now come together under his singular commandment. Under his singular command. And so they're, they're heading out. In other word fasal in Arabic, it, it refers to ibti'ad and qat'ar. Those are the two implications of it. In simple English, what that means is to be cut off, Number one, to be cut off and to be far So it's not just saying when the army set out from the city Where they were, where they were comfy and they were at home They are out there now يعني بَعِدُونَ عَنِ مَسَاكِنِهِمْ They're away from the towns, they're away from their homes They're way out there camped in, you know Halfway, more than halfway through where they're gonna meet the enemy So there's no turning back at this point pretty much Right? And if an army has gone away from towns, and they're cut from society, and they're cut from towns and civilizations, well, that has another implication. You're le- you're, you know, have to ration your sources, resources. You're going to run start running out of food, you're going to start running out of supplies. Because an army can't supply you know, su- survive without supplies, so they have to, if they're traveling a long distance, they have to go from one city to the next to the next to restock. Right? But because of the use, use of the word Fasala, it's an indication that they were far away from a city, or any kind of civilization, which necessarily means that they are low on their supplies. This is فَلَمَّا to Bil Then, so when Talud took the, the armies all the way out there, or he went all the way out there with the armies, inna Allaha bi Nahar. He said, no doubt about it, Allah is testing you, or He's about to test you, and it's going to be a specific test, just read the إضافة here, is actually very interesting uh, Because it, it can It doesn't have to be an idlaf And it's been made that way Which is a very powerful construct in Arabic Allah is absolutely going to be testing you And He's already testing you Bin-Nahar By a, 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 a lake Or a river that's coming Now it doesn't say Bin-Nahar With the river He says Bin-Naharin With a river Now the difference between Bin-Nahar and Bin-Nahar is huge Because if He says Allah will test you with a river Means that they don't, they don't know what river they don't even know there's a river coming ahead If you say Allah will test you with the river Then when you say the before something, Al before something Islam tarif يعني الناس يعرفونها They know the river they, know, they don't know it They don't know there's a river coming ahead So he mentally prepares them ahead of time Why was that important? But because if, once they see the river They're not gonna be listening for announcements from the general Somebody's gonna cry out water And everybody else is gonna go take a dip So he says look, a river's coming and Allah is going to be testing you. Allah is going to be testing you. And the word ibtila is tougher than the word bala. And mubtali is from ibtila. It's from ibtila, which means it's going to be a tough test for you. The key here is your low on supplies, and you're going to come across a river. Wow, what a lifesaver! We're going to come across a river. A river, right? He says, فَمَنْ شَرِبَ then whoever drinks from it, فَلَيْسَ مِنِّي. Uh, Laysa minni is an old expression of the Arabic, and they say min al ittisal here. Or min al tab'eed also, some have argued. The two meanings of that would be Laysa minni literally means he is not from me. If you read an English translation, it says he is not from me. And it's kind of hard to figure out what that means. But what it means in the Arabic language is he has no relation with me. I am court martialing him from my army. He is dishonorably discharged from the military service. A river is coming, if, you, if whoever drinks from it has been discharged from this army he has, He's not under my command anymore, he's free to go You're free to drink, then you're free to go, go home فَلَيْسَ مِنِّي وَمَن لَمْ يَطْعَمْهُ And whoever doesn't consume it And the word ta'am typically in Arabic is used for eating, not drinking الطَعَام هو الأَكْل so you don't say atamtuhu sharaban. I, I fed him water. They say asqaytuhu sharaban. I gave him water to drink. As-saqah is to give someone to drink. At-ta'am or as is drinking, and ta'am is eating. You know. So we say in the du'a, for example, we make a distinction, distinction between the two. Alhamdulillahil wa saqana. There's two different things. There's two different things. Feeding is from ta'am, and drinking is from saqa siqaya. But in this ayah, malam This is a very interesting, subtle point of the language. There's nothing to eat there. Some argue, perhaps they're gonna go in there and they might even find fish to eat. So perhaps that's why taam is used. But the other meaning is actually very powerful. Taam in the negative, not in the positive, but in the negative is used. Aqallu darajat adhuk, like the least bit of taste that someone can experience is also called taam. Yani lam atam shay'an, lam shay'an. I haven't tasted even a little bit of it. Or I had a bite of it and I don't even know what it was so little that I couldn't even taste it. يطعمه, and whoever doesn't even get the taste of water in their mouth, مني, then that's the one for sure that is from my army that stays with me. Illa biyadi. The only exception is whoever goes up to the flowing beautiful crystal river with the hot desert around him and he puts his hand inside, Ihtaraf. He puts his hand and makes a little couplet out of the water and sips like that with his hand. His face is not going to touch the water, his arms are not going to touch the water, he's not going to take a swim in the water, he's not going to splash his face with the water, he's just going to take a little and move on. And غُرْفَةً is mustar marra which means he's going to do this not... He's not going to do this eight times, it's going to be one time and bam. You know when some of you guys you play basketball and there's a water fountain? and you press the thing and you go and you stay there for like 85 seconds because it comes out little by little and the guy, the guy before you is like what's taking so long? it's coming little by little man I gotta like you know it's gonna take me a while he says the test is you have to take it this much Alhamdulillah, move on <laughs> move on, subhanAllah what a test but why, why is he torturing his army like this? they need the supplies well this army was put together quickly or slowly? Let's put together very quickly, it's a, it's a makeshift emergency army When you have a makeshift emergency army, especially their generals themselves were in disagreement We already learned that before, their generals themselves were un, uh, you know, uh, not, not in any kind of discipline If the generals themselves don't have discipline, what do you expect from the army? No discipline And by the way, in, the, in, war, in war, the difference between life and death is discipline One soldier moves out of place, gives up the position of the rest of the soldiers and they're all dead. One guy gets out or fires before they were supposed to fire. One guy shoots an arrow and gives up the, the strategic advantage. One guy runs from the field and the others say, Oh my God, he's not in his position, I gotta take it. Everything starts falling apart. The army, in the army, every soldier is strategically placed. And they have to follow a very, very tight discipline. And it's not easy, you know, it's not like the marching band. And it's not like a basketball team. And it's not like football. They have a discipline too. But in the army, the enemy is coming at you, your life is being threatened, and you still have to hold your position. You have to fight every ounce in your body that says, the natural instinct inside you that says, run, move from here, protect yourself. You have to fight that and stay there because your brothers, your comrades, their life depends on you staying in your position. It requires the height of discipline. Why do you think every army has marches and training and you know, specific times to wake up and 10 seconds late and you do 30 push-ups and all of that? Why? Because this is, this is going to be 10 seconds will be the difference between life and death for you and your team on the field. So he doesn't have any time to do discipline training for them. So Allah Azza wa reveals to him, some say he revealed to Saul before him, the Prophet that they had, and he told them, look, let them know that this is coming, when the time comes. Either way, the point is, Allah is going to be testing you. inna Kum مُبْتَلِيكُمْ binahar He doesn't say, I am testing you, he says. Allah is testing you. But clearly, practically, who's taking, who needs to test them? The, the general does. What we're learning now is, the decision of the Muslim community, the decision of the leadership, is something that Allah puts, stands behind. When Allah stands behind the leadership, then we have to trust that at the end of the day, that is from Allah. That's why, Ati'ullah wa Ati'ul Rasul wa ulul amri minkum. The ulul amr is there too. There's, there's something to be said about the discipline of the leader. It's such a powerful institution that even in Salat, I mean, Salat is the most powerful institution the Muslim has. Even in Salat, if Imam Sa'ab one, one day by mistake in Fajr, instead of praying two, gets up for a third, what are you going to do? You're gonna get up You're gonna I'm praying too Follow the sunnah or follow the imam Forget that, I'm sitting here and praying too Actually the sunnah is follow the imam Let him know he's made a mistake, but follow him You gotta stick with the discipline This is what we learn in every salah And by the way, if people didn't know any better And they looked at our prayer They would consider it like a march Or they would consider it like military training Because the, the, you know in military training you have a, someone in front And he makes a call And attention Right, left, move He says, Allahu Akbar, everybody goes down, Allahu Akbar, everybody comes back. What we learn from Salat is actually a military form of discipline. That's what it does. Which actually, what does that do for people who come out of an army, by the way? When people go to, a, you know, the cadets go to an army school, and, you know, boot camp and all of that, they come back more or less disciplined. They come back disciplined, don't they? They wake up at a certain time, they go to sleep at a certain time They have very refined eating habits They have very refined way of walking Of sitting, of sleeping Their personality changes Young people that go to military school Their personality changes They become different people We go to military school five times a day Clearly we're not good students Because it's indicative in the way we park our cars outside The way we put our shoes outside on the rack The way our bathrooms look When we're done with wudu I don't know if a flood went through Or somebody made wudu Right? There's a difference, isn't it? Inside salah, we are the height of discipline It's impressive, non-Muslims come and see Wow, you guys are really sick How much do you practice? How much do you guys sync with this? Like, you know Everybody's in line Everybody's lined up perfectly, it's amazing Of all ages too Yeah, it just comes naturally Discipline comes naturally to the Muslims You know? Yeah, it sure does (laughs) You know? So anyway, I'm I'm prolonging I gotta make this as short as I can Inshallah ta'ala So, the purpose of this test was Listen, it's gonna be hard for you But if you can learn to fight your urge Now, it's going to train you to fight your urge to run Fight your urge to save yourself Or to run towards spoils of war in the battlefield And if you don't develop that discipline, we're all dead And those of you that are incapable of displaying that discipline Are no longer an asset to the army They are a liability So you need to go home you are, we are better off without you. We don't need numbers that are useless. We don't need numbers that will create chaos on the battlefield. So he's not being harsh by saying, you know, Whoever drinks from it is not from me. He's saying, I can't afford you people. You're going to get everybody else killed. I need disciplined soldiers in my army. It's genius. It's so powerful how Allah summarized what an army needs, what an organization needs. And from it, we're also learning something powerful as a community. You know, in leadership, in leadership of a community, you will have volunteers, people work under you. Right? And sometimes you have to give them an assignment. You give 10 people an assignment, everybody has an assignment. 4 people do it, 6 people don't do it. Guess which 6 people you should not be giving assignments in the future. Or not giving heavy expectations in the future. Don't yell at them. Don't tell them, you know, You know, مِنِّيَ Don't do that. But you know what? Don't, they've proven that they're not able to meet deadlines, so don't put them in that position again. You will hurt, they will hurt, the organization will hurt, the project will hurt. Why put yourself in that position? فَلَيْسَ مِنِّي إِلَّا مَنْ Accept the one who can control his urges, take what he needs and move on. And Allah will put barakah in that little sip and maybe make him last longer than a camel would. That's up to Allah Azza wa Because the test is from Allah. Then what happens? فَشَرِبُوا مِنْهُ Then they drank from it. It's not even like a falamma sharibu means it's like they thought about it and drank from it Fa is actually in Arabic Some, some uh, people of Balagha they say fa Al-fa'u asra' minal, min al wa. They say fa is quicker than the wow. So if it said wa sharibu It would have also been and they drank from it But it would have been slower Fa sharibu Then they heard it and said Let's go And they swam in there And they drank from it And they gulped it down Illa qaleelah minhu. Except very very few among them so the few left, meaning the army was already small and weak, and now there's been a purge, and so very, very few are left. In قَلِلُوا Minhum. And the others even, they're insubordinate. They said, oh, no, no, we'll still come. Whatever man, let's go. But he's not in charge of them anymore. He's really got control over the few that displayed discipline at that very time. It's a long ayah, so I'll conclude here. Inshallah, Taala, and our next dars, we will try to tie up the rest of the lessons that are left in this beautiful ayah. BarakAllahu <laughs> liwalakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim. nafa'ani wa iya'akum bil-ayati wa dzik al-Hakim. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Shaytan al-Rajim. قَالَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ مُبْتَلِيكُمْ بِنَهَرٍ فَمَن شَرِبَ مِنْهُ فَلَيْسَ مِنِّي ولم وَمَن لَّمْ يَطْعَمْهُ فَإِنَّهُ مِنِّي إِلَّا مَنِ غُرْفَةً بِيَدِهِ فَشَرِبُوا مِنْهُ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا منهم فلما جاوزه هو والذين آمنوا معه قالوا لا طاقة لنا اليوم بجالوت وجنوده قال الذين يظنون انهم ملاقوا الله كم من فئة قليلة غلبت فئة كثيرة بإذن الله والله مع الصابرين رب الشح Sadri ولا سر لأمري وأحل العقدة من لساني أه قولي الحمد لله رب العالمين <laughs> Last time I spoke with you about uh, roughly half the ayah that I'm dealing with uh, in this series and that's ayah number 249 of Surah Al-Baqarah We talked about Talut marching forward with his armies the, the structure of discipline and how he tested their discipline and how the test of discipline before they actually meet the enemy was going to be the drink of water We talked about even the one who doesn't even consume it even a little bit He's the only one that actually has something to do with me So that first wave of a purge has happened Now even though you have a disciplined army Because now we can assume from here on The people left are the people that are actually associated with him The one he allowed for him, for, to be kept in the army It doesn't mean that these people are perfect. It means that they are more disciplined than the rest. Sure, they passed, you can say, level one of training, right? Because they haven't had a long time, extensive time to train, but it doesn't mean that they are like all in the same rank of commitment and none of them are scared and they're ready to fight the enemy. It's not the case. So you're gonna have people of varying commitments and varying levels of bravery even on the battlefield. And that's something Allah Azza wa Jal highlights. And even acknowledges as something that may be, uh, may be natural Because the people that are not from him Meaning the people that have nothing to do with Talut السلام, his, And his army Are people who directly disobeyed him But Allah does not exclude the people who have some fear Or they are just afraid when they you know, meet the enemy Now they cross the water And once they cross the water What becomes apparent is from afar You can see the enemy's approach And there, you know, there's a cloud of dust rising. And from the as far as you can see, you can just endless soldiers, way out in the distance. So you're going to meet them in an hour or two. You're slowly marching towards them. But they can start seeing you and you sort of start seeing them. But you're both saving your energy. Because if you start running right now, half an hour later, both of you will be panting. And you still haven't met each other. So they slowly march towards each other until they get really close. They conserve their energy. And then that's when they... You know, really go at each other, right? So that's the idea But as they are marching, the closer you get with every step Your view of the approaching army gets more and more visible And it becomes more and more intimidating More daunting, who are we taking on? What in the world are, have we done? So now Allah says Then eventually when they crossed the water When they went past it And also the word "jawaza" is used in Arabic When you cross a test, when you pass a test so it's got this duality in language, they crossed the water and they also crossed the test. They passed the test that they were given of discipline. So Allah says, Huwa amanu ma'ahu. Those and he himself when he crossed it, meaning he passed the test of being a good leader. And those who believed, and Allah adds the words, "ma'ahu" with him. And that's important because the only ones that were left with him are the people of real iman. So Allah says that, that test of discipline wasn't just a test of discipline, it was also a test of Iman. It was also a test of Iman. So, And those who stick with the Messenger and don't falter from that discipline have proven their Iman in that Messenger and that Prophet. So, alayhi salam, he and his army and the people who truly believe alongside with him have crossed it. قَالَ uh, uh, قَالُوا A group of them, you know, they said, La تَا lana we absolutely have no power whatsoever. Some Arabic students sitting here recently learned the la Nafi lil jins, right? The absolutely categorical, you know, unconditional negation of something. This is la taqata. It's mansub, and it's you know It doesn't have tenween on it. And the idea behind that is we have absolutely no power whatsoever. And you know, and is like kuwa, but it's personal, like when you have your your own strength. So we have no strength. Doesn't matter how strong we are we actually have nothing compared to what these guys have and so they say Bijaluta wa against jalut who himself is massive and then his arm not his army but his armies junudihi in other words they see one wave here one wave here one wave here they're getting almost surrounded and they're just you know the, the view is just the landscapes being covered by a soldier so they're like what have we there's no way i mean we're just going to get squashed la taqata lana al yawm bijalut wa now, Allah says, and this again is, is from among those who believed with Him. Their iman's already been approved of. You know, that's already been said. So, it's important to note that this fear and this acknowledgement is something natural. And this is actually something that happened in the life of the Sahaba too. You know, in the battle of Uhud, some younger Sahaba, when they went into the battlefield, before it, they were like, We want to be Shaheed. We want to fight in the path of Allah, etc. And Allah comments that when you actually saw the heat of battle, you were shell shocked. Allah ma- talks about that in the Quran. He says, you, you were the same people that were wishing for death before you met it, before you came into contact with it. And when you did, Then you are just looking at it. You are just standing there staring. Like you were stunned. You know? So it's one thing to have the intention I want to fight in the path of Allah I want to stand alongside the messenger of Allah I want to be a shaheed That's one thing to have that intention But when you stand in the battlefield I mean we are human beings, right? It's natural to have that fear So Allah acknowledges that fear And this is again, I remind you, important Because this, these ayat are right before the battle of Badr This is right before the battle of Badr All of this is actually preparing mentally the Muslims For what they're about to do 300 something, they barely have any weapons And they're going to stand in front of a well-equipped and well-experienced army of the Quraysh A lot of the people in the Muslim army, they, especially the, Muhajir, the the Ansar, they don't even have battle experience They're farmers They're farmers And Rasulullah ﷺ was even hesitant to ask them to join You know, he was just waiting for them to speak up themselves And they said, yeah, yeah, well come join And they jumped in you know, and they, don't, they have a hand, like single digits and swords and spears and one or two horses and 300 and a thousand people that are armed to the teeth. There's no way. Well, this is going to be a massacre. So, this is, this is being echoed like this is not the first badr. Because badrs happened before. That's what's being told to them. So, the, a group among them sees the army and gets intimidated, and Allah is again preparing the people look, if some of you get intimidated, don't worry. It's not just a history lesson, it's a future lesson too. So this might happen to you when you go in. Some of you might look at the army of Quraysh and say, لا be لَا Would you قُرَيْشِنْ They might say that. But well, what should you do at that point? Those of you that hear that, can that destroy morale? Can, if somebody just out loud just says, Oh my God! Even if you hear that, does it destroy morale? And we learn something about, about morale here, about psychology, a group psychology. When a bunch of people come together to do some work, and even one of them says, oh man, it's so hard. One guy says it. Guess what happens? Everybody else runs out of gas. It deflates the entire group. Everybody says, oh my God, it is hard. Yeah. Words are very powerful things. Words are very powerful things. And you know, you are, especially when you're working with someone, and one person's intimidated, one person is afraid, one person is, you know, uh, depressed or lost motivation, and they express it, then it is like a disease that spreads. It's like a disease that spreads. And this happens in any kind of collective work. It happens at the office when you're doing a project, it happens in a classroom. You're doing a work, you're doing a problem. One student says, Oh, this is so hard. Guess what? Even the guy next to him who was almost done Goes man it is hard huh. One student says This is impossible Oh my god I'll never understand this Even the guy that was 70% there he only had 30% To go says yeah you're right I'll never understand this You know So this can't, it's, Sometimes people can't help themselves They get overwhelmed and they say it But it does hurt the morale of everybody else So now Allah teaches us when that does happen What do you do how do you re- reignite and you know, recalibrate everybody and put them back on track again? Because without motivation, an army is nothing. And by, by extension, without motivation, any collective task is nothing. Whether you are a group of people that are running a youth group, or we're in, in charge of running a masjid, or you're running a school, whatever you're doing. Motivation is absolutely critical. And especially when you're together, the words you choose have to be very careful. Because they can make or break the entire project. Individually, people are motivated. Collectively, they're very sensitive. Very sensitive. It's a different dynamic. You know? There are corporations today that spend millions of dollars on team spirit. On building team spirit. That you don't say bad things. Oh, man, we're, just, yeah, we're not going to make any sales. It's going downhill. We're probably going to get fired next year. The company is probably going to go bankrupt. Well, when you start talking like that, you're almost guaranteeing that it will go <laughs> bankrupt. Because <laughs> nobody's going to do their job anymore. You know? So now, coming back to the ayah. <laughs> Those people who are absolutely convinced that they are going to be meeting Allah. أَنَّهُمْ <laughs> And mulakullah is a beautiful expression because Mulaq is an ism fa'il Some of the students learned that recently Not this, not this pattern you guys don't know yet Laqayulaqi means to meet someone right in front of you Laqiyah in Arabic is to meet Yani laqituk, I met you Laqaytuk Laqaytuk is a really like intense meeting It's a mubalagh form of liqa You know, liqa is just any meeting But then when you have uh, We actually stole the word from Arabic in Urdu Mulaqat karna you know in urdu also they have milna or mulaqat karna mulaqat is actually a more powerful word it's than just milna right so it's it's a formal meeting now in arabic the ism fa'il and it sounds like a grammar lesson but i'll be really quick cuz i got to get this out of my system the ism fa'il can have a maf'ul bihi so you can say mulaquna allaha qala الَّذِينَ يَظُنُونَ أَنَّهُمْ مُلَاقُونَ allaha you could say that you know uh like in other places in quran you know uh allah says hashi wa alladhina hum li furujihim right and in in all some of those ayat, you have the ism fa'il and you have a maf'ul bihi like inni ja'ilun fil ardi khalifatan khalifatan it happens but the thing between a a fi'l and ism fa'il and a maf'ul is you can put them apart like inni ja'ilun fil ardi khalifatan you could say, إِنِّي جَاعِلٌ خَلِيفَةً فِي الْأَرْضِ You can put them together, but you can also put them apart. But when you make an إضافة, مُلَاقُ الله, When you make an إضافة, what happens? You can't separate a muḍāf from a muḍāf إِلَيْهُ And that's what they're saying about their meeting with Allah. They're going to be meeting with Allah and they'll never be separated from Allah again. There's this incredible, powerful expression... That's captured in even grammatically, the words that are supposed to be locked in with each other. You can't separate them, you can't put them apart. Even if you want to, it wouldn't make any sense grammatically. That's mulaqullah. So these people are absolutely convinced, convinced that they are going to have this grand meeting with Allah. And that meeting is going to bring them super close to Allah. And they're going to be inseparable from Allah like a mudafis from its mudafilay. <laughs> that's, that's what they're going to experience. Subhanallah. But where are these people? They're on a battlefield. And if they're on a battlefield, what are they worried about meeting Allah for? They're supposed to be worried about meeting the enemy. They see the enemy in front of them. And they're thinking about Allah. What's going on here? You know, this is something Allah describes. He teaches the Muslims to do this when they're in the battlefield, when, when Badr happened, when Uhud happened. إِلَى مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ Run to forgiveness from your master. Now when armies come face to face, I mean you guys have seen enough like Classic movies or whatever, when ancient armies are about to collide, when they're standing next to each other, you know, they're standing there, there's a pause, and there's a striking of the spear on the ground, and there's a motivational speech by a dude on a horse, and then what happens? Charge! Right? When they're running, what are they running towards? They're running towards the enemy. They're running towards death. Allah says, I need you to think about this differently. You're running towards forgiveness. He tells the Muslim army, you're running towards what? Forgiveness. And what else are you running towards? السَّمَوَاتُ You're running towards Jannah. You're not running towards the enemy. And these guys, even at a higher state of Ihsan, what are they saying? We are actually running towards the meeting with Allah Azza wa Jalla. I'm not even worried about these people. And Allah has been with us all along And now we finally get to meet with Him I've never been more excited In other words, these guys They have this optimism inside them And even if their colleague says Man, we got nothing today We're gonna get squashed today He's like, what? Get squashed? We're gonna meet Allah What? Oh my goodness, this is the day And it's not like they wish for death It's not like that They're gonna fight hard They're not gonna stand there like, Come on, hit me man I gotta meet Allah It's not gonna be like that but they're gonna say something to motivate, to rally everybody else. And you know what we're learning? We're learning people of the strongest iman, you know what they do? They motivate others. When everybody else is losing motivation, the people of the strongest iman are the ones who stand up and say, Come on, guys. We have people, we have iman in Allah. So they say, Come in fiatin. Come min fiatin. You say in Arabic, come fi'atan. How many groups? Like you guys learned, come kitaban. You know, come Masjidan, come fi'atan. This min is min za'ida. How many groups? Kamin fi'atin, qalilatin. And fi'a itself is small. Fi'a itself in Arabic is small. Ta'ifa is big. طائفة gets bigger. And Jama'a is even bigger than that. There are different words for groups. A small group is called fi'a. Fi'a. And so Allah says, come fi These people say, how many fiatin, and even added on top of that, How many small groups that were super small? dominated, took over, won over, فِيَةً kabir, Kabiratan, kathiratan. How many of them dominated over a large group, a massive group? بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ And kathir is also important, because kathir implies that the other group is still small. In the sight of who? Allah azza You don't need to be so intimidated They're still a fi'ah They're not a jama'ah They're not a jaish They're not something bigger. They're still a fi'ah man We're fi'ah and they're a fi'ah And yes we're qalila And they are kathira They're more in number But man we're still fi'ah You don't have to be intimidated they got, they got nothing They're just human And how many times has it been That a small group has dominated a large group be By Allah's permission By Allah's leave When Allah decides Then they will fall They will fall like leaves off a tree They're gonna crash They're gonna fall And you don't worry about that That's not up to us That's Allah's permission So they give this counter speech And what one speech was That deflated the army The other speech argh, Inflated the army again as sabirin, And Allah is with People that have sabr, people that are persevering, people that are consistent People that can hold on and stay strong This is in the meanings of sabirin in this ayah People that can stay strong, people that don't get deflated So what we're learning is what is one of the forms of sabr One of the forms of sabr A lot of times people think of sabr, they think when I'm in difficulty I should have sabr Like when the, the dentist is drilling in my mouth I should just have sabr and do like tasbih or something You know, I can't, you know? that's sabr I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna yell and scream, that's sabr Yeah, that's a kind of sabr too But another kind of sabr is you've got, work, you've got work to do And people around you are completely unmotivated And actually every time you see them You get even more depressed And less inclined to do the work What sabr then is Is to maintain your morale Maintain your enthusiasm And stay at it, come on Let's do this This is wallahumma sabirin Allah is with those who show sabr You will find sabr is used Consistently in the Quran when Muslims are about to go into the battlefield The Sahaba going into the battlefield Sabr comes up every single time Every single time Why? Because part of that is motivation You have to be patient with yourself too Sabr is also about If you want to put Sabr in psychological terms It's important to do that nowadays Because we understand more and more things about psychology Sabr, to put it in psychological terms Is to fight certain emotions that all of us have naturally There are some emotions that we have There are some feelings that we have That are natural And sabr is the strength to fight them Fear is a natural emotion When you're fighting your fear You're showing sabr Laziness is a natural emotion Exhaustion is a natural emotion I'm just mentally tired I don't want to do this Sabr is to fight your laziness And make salat Sabr is to fight your laziness And finish your homework That's also sabr Anger is a natural emotion, and what do you have to do? You have to fight that emotion and remain calm. That's a kind of sabr. You can even have sabr when you have happiness. You're so happy, you're yelling and screaming, and you want to dance or something, and you just say, just calm down, buddy. Sabr. Okay? Sabr. You control yourself. This is this is part of what sabr is. By the way, a test of sabr was. Even not just emotion, a human inclination Thirst, I want to drink, I want to swim so bad Man, this water looks so good What do you have to have to be able to stop yourself? You have to be able to stop So there's something inside you and you have to fight it It's a war inside a person A person who is sabit Is constantly winning against his urges There's an urge inside them He knows how to stop them He knows how to control them Okay? This is expressed in other ways in the Quran when Allah says, "You know wa wanahan nafsa That expression, "wanahan nafsa is basically sabr. He stopped himself from desire. He could, he could put the brakes on himself. This is wallahu ma'as So this was Alhamdulillah the conclusion of the 249th ayah of this beautiful surah. In the next ayah, inshallah Taala, next week we're going to learn a beautiful du'a. That these believers, when everybody's motivation was there now They're ready to go Now what they need is to solidify their motivation And then we learn when you're motivated That is the right time to make dua That's the time to, you know If you don't finish the job Then turn back to Allah then, you know Because he he just said The only way people have won before Small groups have destroyed large groups before Many times, it's not one time man It's been happened many times, it's done happened But you know what, it always happened by Allah's permission so you know what, we're going to need to make du'a And by the way, as they're talking, are they stopping? No, they're actually marching So the size and the view of the RV is getting bigger and bigger So you're supposed to lose motivation, right? And they undid that And they built motivation As they got closer and closer to the enemy And eventually, in the next ayah barazu," when They came face to face So right now they're in the view, but they're not face to face Now you can see their face And right there Then the du'a will come so we'll learn about that inshallah ta'ala next week barakallahu li wa hakim wa nafa'ani wa bil ayati wa dhikri hakim wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh rajim ولمّا برزوا لجالوت وجنوده قالوا ربنا افرغ علينا صبرا وثبت اقدامنا وانصرنا على القوم الكافرين رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل من لساني على رسول الله so we have reached, Alhamdulillah, ayah number 250 of Surah Al Baqarah in this uh, thematic discussion. And SubhanAllah, this is one of the most beautiful near conclusions of the story of Talut and Jalut, the sole place that it's mentioned in the Quran. And now Allah Azza wa talks about when the armies finally came face to face. So, When they finally uh, you know, when the Muslims who had now survived crossing over the water It's a quick recap of what we talked about before They've crossed over and now they've come face to face Baraza in Arabic is to be in front of someone Antakuna takuna fulanin. That you're in front of somebody And you're literally, there's nothing missing in your view Okay, so a more emphatic form, a tougher form of this word is used Later on in the Quran when Allah says وَبُرِّزَتِ الْجَحِيمُ لِمَنْ يَرَى when Jahim will be brought face to face, and it will be dragged forward so for the one to see. So the same idea, now this, in this case, now the Muslim army and the enemy's army have now come close. Now you know when they're far, you can visualize this, when the armies are far from each other, you don't really get the full picture of how many the enemy is. You kind of see one line. But as you get closer and closer, you don't see the... the it's not, it doesn't seem to be ending. How many are there? And the more and more keep appearing and appearing and appearing... Now the scene is where they have a full view of what they're actually dealing with. They have an entire view of who the enemy is in front of them, the armies of Jalut. So it's massive. So Allah says, وَلَمَّا بَرَزُوا Jaluta wa وَجُنُودِهِ And his armies. And this is important in Qur'an because Jund in the Arabic language is an army, it's singular. But Junud is multiple. It's plural. So you can think of literally multiple battalions carrying multiple flags Regimented from every angle, and they're approaching towards the Muslims in this case, you know. And so, this now, you know, before there was a training exercise, if you remember, with the water and the drinking, that discipline exercise, and kind of building their courage and all of that. And we've already read. You know, when they crossed the water over, they started saying, you know, oh, we, there's no way we can handle those guys. And now they've literally come face to face. So now what we're going to hear from the Muslims is the last thing they said before they entered battle. Because obviously once you enter battle, there's no time to talk anymore. So you could th- say these are their last, possibly their last words. Because they're, they're pretty good chance that they're going to be killed in this battle. They're completely outnumbered, completely outmaneuvered, completely out, you know, outranked in terms of experience and... Even resources, military resources, all of it. Right? So now what do they say? They say, qalu rabbana, they said, Our master, meaning they made a dua. This is a dua. Rabbana afriq علينا sabran. Master, now it's hard to translate afriq, but farag in Arabic actually means emptiness. It actually means emptiness. So if you have a jug and you've got milk in there or juice or something and you totally emptied it out, afragtahu. You know, you completely empty the bottle out There's not a drop left This is called ifragh, Completely pour out something Now, if al ifragh ala shay To pour something out totally on top of something else Now, there are different ways in Arabic Because it's a very visual language There are different ways in in which you can describe Pouring a liquid And one of the ways you can describe it is sabb Sabb actually, to give you an example of sabb in modern Context, you know how when some some teams they win like a championship, and the coach is being celebrated, and then they bring this like giant bucket of Gatorade or whatever it is, and they kind of dash it on the guy. That's sub. That's sub. Sabb. So sabbul ma. And if a wave like a tsunami comes and it kind of smashes whatever comes, on, this is also called sub. And this word is used in the Quran, and so adab. Right? The whip of Allah's punishment will come like a tsunami and it will just splash on you, you know? Now the difference between al ifrah and sab is kind of interesting because ifrah is used usually for bottles or jugs and containers that contain milk and they have an opening where you can pour the drink smoothly, right? So one kind of pouring is comfortable and soft and easy and the other kind of pouring is painful and immediate and shocking and it can even kill you, Right? Now, the dua is interesting because they said, the word is pour onto us, afriq alaina, sabran. Sabran. Pour sabr onto us. It's as though there's this jug, this container, and it's filled with what? Sabr. And Ya Allah, take that and gently drench us in sabr. You know, drip, completely drench us, completely cover us in this liquid of sabr, and don't leave any of it out because we need all of it. <laughs> you know? This is the imagery that they ask Allah for. They want to be drenched, drowned in sabr. Now, this idea of being drenched in something is actually something Allah talks about before, and I'm going to take you back because this is actually, in some sense, a tafsir of a previous ayah. Allah Azza wa says previously, if you remember, sibghat Allah, وَمَنْ Ahsanu min Allah, he's sibrah. Well sibrah he alone. Sibra in Arabic means colour. Sibghat Allah means the colour of Allah. When they say sibghat Allah, it's mansub. It actually means Allah. we have chosen the color of Allah. We have adopted the color of Allah. In other words, our personalities reflect tawhid. That's what that means. Now, what is a personality that reflects tawhid? In the worst test, what does it actually reflect? It reflects sabr. All of it boils down at the end of the day to sabr. You have iman, you have good deeds, you have you know uh, iman and amal and all of it, right? But at the climax of it all, at the end of it all, all of it means something or all of it means nothing. Depending on whether or not you and I are people of what? Sabr. At the end of it, the iman was there, the good deeds were there from before, obviously, they, every step they took in the path of Allah meant something, but now they need all of that to count. Can you imagine somebody who studies the entire year to, to graduate, and then there's one exam, there's, you know how they have them back home, they don't actually give you credit for every day of attendance and every homework, they don't count all that as one exam. <laughs> You pass that exam, you pass. You fail that exam, you fail. So this guy studies and he works hard and he puts all the effort in and he just doesn't... Right before the exam he says, I can't do this, he walks away. You know, he doesn't write anything on the exam. All that effort goes to nothing. All the effort amounts to zero. So now is the time to test all of that iman, all of that amal, all of that build up is now going to be tested. So they say, Ya Allah, we need all the sabr we can get even in, in surah al asr how beautiful that everything climaxes with the word sabr right illal ladina amanu wa amilusalihat wa tawasal bil And finally the most important look at what happens in surah, uh, surah al baqarah also ayatul bir ayatul bir talks about all kinds of good things amana billahi wal wal kitab to believe in allah and the books and all of that wa bal ala hubbihi to give money despite your love of money you know the wil qurba wal yatama wal masakeen wabnas Sabil. and then wa aqama salat wa ata az zakat you know wal mufuna bi ahdi with al ahdi even before then wa aqama salat wa ata az zakat they fulfill their promises they establish prayer they give zakat there's such a long list of things to do and at the climax of it all and it's even made mansoob to make it special wa sabirina fil ba'sa wa d-darr wa hina al ba's ulai ka alladhina sadaqu the people who have sabr at the end of the day the people of sabr, the people of perseverance, the people who can hold on. So what does sabr in a nutshell mean? Even though I've talked about it many times before, just quick bullet points. First thing about sabr is to not lose your commitment. Like the, If the easiest definition you can think of in English is to not lose your commitment and to remain consistent. People, of course, we have ups and downs. You're in a good mood, you're in a bad mood. Some days a good day for prayer, some days not so much. Some days you recited a lot of Quran, some days you didn't do it. Some days you had a lot of, you know, you you did well with people, other days you were in a bad mood. But to try to maintain the same standard every day, to hold yourself to the same standard, and to not make excuses about yourself, this is an attitude of a sabir. They try to maintain consistency. They remain disciplined. Now these people had the commitment that they want to go out in the path of Allah. They want to fight in the path of Allah. Obviously, every step they took was a proof of that commitment. But you know when that commitment can completely disappear? When you see the size of that enemy. So they say, Ya Allah, right now every every bit of sabr you can give me. I need to stay firm on this commitment. You know? So they say, Afriq alayna sabran. So the, the, there's a pit. Paint colored sabr and they've painted themselves in it They ask Allah to drench themselves in it And smoothly too Because you know when you pour something on someone, it's painful Ya Allah, don't even let us realize That you're actually filling us with this strength of sabr Now usually Soldiers, when they're about to meet the enemy They would pray for assistance They would pray for military equipment They would pray for angels If they're believers, they pray for angels to show up and help out right? They would pray for victory you would think logically you should pray for victory, or maybe you should pray for bravery, strength of heart. What is the secret behind them asking for so much sabr? Because Allah Azza wa has already said before, wallahu Ma'as Sabirin. Allah is with those who have sabr. So if we have sabr, then we know it's not just us, that we know guaranteed you are with us. And if we don't have sabr, we know one thing, you are not with us. So by asking for sabr, they actually ask for the secret weapon. Allah's ma'iyyah, Allah's company, Allah's assistance. So they knew what it takes to get to qualify for divine assistance from Allah Azza wa Jalla. So this is, and, and interestingly enough, just to fast forward quickly in Surah Al Imran. In Al Imran, things didn't go so well, right? Because the uh, uh, this describes the battle of Uhud, and in before you know after the commentary, Allah reminds the Muslims when you asked the Messenger sallallahu the Messenger was you know encouraging you. And He was telling you, أَن يُمِدَّكُمْ You know, if maybe Allah can extend your military might. At Badr we had very little. Maybe Allah can give you more. And He can give you 3,000 angels. Or we, you know, 3,000 angels can come to assist you. You're just 300 something. Forget that, I'll give you 10 times that and 10 times not humans, but 10 times that of angels. One angel is enough to take out Quraysh. <laughs> Allah sends 3,000 angels. He says, why not? But how, come, how does he say it? He says, in إِن wa Even then the same condition. No, no, why not? If you have sabr, if you have sabr, and you have taqwa of Allah, now what is that? Why taqwa second? Taqwa second because taqwa means the, the desire to protect yourself from the displeasure of Allah. And when you're against the enemy, the only desire you have is to protect yourself from the attack of the enemy. But if you have sabr, then you will not lose your taqwa, your sense of wanting to protect yourself from Allah's displeasure. It will still keep you strong. And if that happens, bi khamsati Forget it. I won't send you three, I'll send you five thousand. Branded horses too on top of that. Riding, riding battle horses. I'll send you a special army. On t- Forget three, I'll give you five. <laughs> you know? But the condition was sabr. So now that's what's being taught to the Muslims. Stay firm. Stay persistent. Stay consistent. So now, Rabbana afriq علينا sabran. Then they ask the next step, وثبت اقدامنا. This is, you can say, you go from theory to practice. You go from the you know, theoretical sciences to the applied. This is the case study. What is proof that we have sabr? Anybody can say we have sabr. How do you see it practically? You know, practically, وثبت اقدامنا, keep our feet planted firm. The, the natural instinct will come and say, run. Run back, retreat, hide, go somewhere, defect from the army. We're not enough to fight them. Maybe we'll fight them another time. Forget about it. Save your life. Ya Allah, this is the time I want you to just put cement under my shoes or something. Because thabtakdamana, keep our feet planted firm. In other words, the idea of sabr. If you don't know what it means in the battlefield, this is what it means. It tafsir al kalima. It's bayan actually. It's explaining what sabr means in these words. What and once that happens, we know even our sabr and our planted feet doesn't mean that we're gonna win. We recognize that we are not qualified to win against the enemy. There's nothing we have that can do that. So they conclude their dua by saying, وَانْصُرْنَا عَلَى الْقَوْمِ الْكَافِرِينَ رَبَّنَا أَفْرِغْ عَلَيْنَا صَبْرًا وَثَبِّتْ أَقْدَامَنَا وَانْصُرْنَا عَلَى القوم And aid us. Nusra in the Arabic language. Or Nasr as occurs in later on in Qur'an, إذا جاء نَصْرُ Nasrullahi many of you are familiar, right? Nasr is another word for aun or aid, help. But nasr is not used for small kinds of assistance. Usually it's only used when you're fighting against an enemy. Against opposing forces, you need military aid. You don't just need some help like changing a tire. You need serious help. So like I'm, when I teach students Arabic, I don't say, don't. if you're asking your fellow student for a pen or a pencil or an eraser, that's not, you're not seeking like unsurni, <laughs> you don't say that. Because you're not going to stab the enemy with your pencil or something. It's not why you're asking for it. So when you know when the, the airplanes drop like military supplies, that's kind of nasr. This is military aid. So they say, recognizing we don't have enough equipment, ya Rab. we don't have that. The only aid we need is you. You aid us. You provide the aid. وَانْصُرْنَا عَلَى الْقَوْمِ الْكَافِرِينَ Against the disbelieving nation. Against a nation that refuses to have iman. And that final statement also, very powerful. Because now we're learning what, what can justify war. Why in the world would you go after these people? First of all, with them is a Prophet. And the Prophet has received a, a commandment to fight against those people. You know a Prophet... Any Prophet, especially the, the messengers of Banu Israel and of course our messenger sallallahu who received a sharia. They are never commanded to fight anyone. They're never commanded to fight anyone until Allah gives his verdict. Until they've committed some kind of very high crime. They're not just any non-Muslims. They're not just any non-Muslims. They have to commit a very serious crime for them to qualify that Allah's messenger or a Prophet would wage war against them. Because a messenger's job, every messenger's job is to be a rahmah. We only sent you for no other purpose except to be a mercy and an act of love. For all of the nations, all the people. So why should they engage in war? Only certain disbelieving groups deserve that they should be fought against and they are the ones who commit the highest kinds of crimes. So in the case of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ, it's the Quraysh who attempted to kill the Messenger of Allah ﷺ, who disbelieved and disregarded this Qur'an directly, in the face of the Messenger even though he was from among them Why the Romans and the Persians? Because killing an ambassador, killing the Sahabi who delivers a message, killing an ambassador is an act of war even until today. Even in the Charter of the United Nations, you kill an ambassador, it's considered an act of war. And on top of that, to disrespect the, the letter of Rasulullah. وسلم, they went after the Messenger himself directly, sallallahu alayhi wa So this was actually a very legitimate response from Allah against those people. It's not just against anybody. It's a misreading of the Quran to think every non-Muslim out there we should make dua on Sunnah Al Qaw No, 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 no. Those who you know innocently shed the blood of Muslims or other innocent people for that matter. Those who because of their kufr, they don't just remain disbelievers, they want to spread kufr and destroy Islam. They don't just want to live in their religion, they'd love to destroy Islam. And they would come after the lives and dignity of Muslims. Then we ask Allah's help against them. وَانْصُرْنَا عَلَى الْقَوْمِ الْكَافِرِينَ So Rabbana أفرغ علينا صبرا وَثَبِّتَ قْدَامَنَا وَانْصُرْنَا عَلَى الْقَوْمِ الْكَافِرِينَ And aid us against the disbelieving nation. And it's interesting, right? Because it's the nation of Jalut. They didn't even say, Allah قومي Jalut. But even in this dua, there's a secret. If we fight them and tomorrow they take shahada, tomorrow they make tawbah, then they don't qualify. They'll still be قوم Jalut, but they won't be Al al الكافرين. So if they're, so long as they're قوم kafirin, Al قوم kafirun, then we want to fight with them. If they let that go, we have no fight with them. We have no argument with them over territory or politics or power or money or resources, nothing. We don't care about any of that. The only reason we have a conflict with them is their kufr, that's it. And that even justified by a living messenger himself in the flesh, alayhi salam. So, وَلَكِنَّ اللَّهَ فَضْلٍ One last comment inshallah and then a request from all of you. And that is in the next ayah. The next ayah begins with the letter Fa فَا, فا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ This is called in Arabic, fa الْفَا السَّبَبِيَّةِ The fa that illustrates causality. It's to give a cause. In other words, as a result of their dua, therefore, they were able to drive the enemy out and defeat him. I'll explain hazm next week insha'Allah. But the fa is important here. In the next ayah we will learn that they were able to defeat the enemy. But Allah didn't just say, and they were able to defeat the enemy. Allah says, therefore, they were able to defeat the enemy. Now the, that and and that therefore makes a huge difference. If you read, wa Hazamuhum as opposed to فَهَزَمُّهُمْ makes a world of a difference. It's not just, and by the way they won. It's actually as a result of what? The dua, the sabr, the sincere du'a, as a result of that they won. Fa You will find this fa interestingly all over Quran in many cases when dua happens. Many cases of du'a you'll find right after that, fa'. As though Allah is saying, You make dua, then you watch what I do. Then you see what I do. One of my favourite examples of that is Musa alayhi salam. Rabbi إِنِّي لِمَاْ أَنزَلْتَ إِلَيَّ مِنْ خَيْرٍ Master, whatever you send my way, I am desperate, I got nothing left. I'm sitting under this tree over here. I got no place to go, I'm homeless. You know, he, was, he had left run away from Egypt. He's got no food, no, no, no extra clothes, shoes are ripped. He's, you know, bleeding from the feet. And he's got this lake in front of him, the only thing he has is to drink water. And then the next ayah says, فَاجَأَتْ إِحْدَاهُ مَا تَمْشِي then one of the two girls came back walking to hire him and give him a job. But it says, fa. <laughs> in other words, notice, by the way, a girl came to, give him, to call him to her father. No, therefore the girl came to take her back to her father in madian and get, get him a job. Therefore, because he made what first? The dua first. So in these ayat, Allah teaches us the relationship between dua and what comes after dua. That's, the, that's what that the little tiny fa is doing there, subhanAllah. And then, since I'm on the subject of fa, I won't explain it next time. Fa in Arabic is also considered immediate. Fa is actually considered immediate. So, fa hazamuhum is like Allah didn't wait to answer that dua, He did it immediately. So, we're learning that the, when the time is right for the people of sabr, Allah brings His help in ways that we can't even understand. May Allah Azzawajal help us develop a, an iman and tawakkul in, in him and build our trust in him so that we can become people that, that qualify for these kinds of dua. May Allah make us people of sabb. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم فهزموهم بإذن الله وقتل داود جالوت وآتاه الله الملك والحكمة وعلمه مما يشاء ولولا دفع الله الناس بعضهم ببعض لفسدت الأرض ولكن الله ذو فضل على العالمين رب لِي صدري وَيَسْرِ لي أمره وأحل العقده من لساني يفقه قولي فالحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ثم ما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Ayah number two hundred and fifty-one, hopefully also two hundred and fifty-two, of Surah al-Baqarah. These are the last few ayat about the story of Dawood, Jalut, Talut that have uh, that are be, have been revealed in this passage. And now, after that incredible du'a, uh, the ayah begins with fa. Fa hazamuhum bi This is actually a really beautiful uh, phenomenon in the Quran. On multiple occasions, you find. That a dua is made, and after the dua, the next ayah begins with the letter fa. And the letter fa is one of its purposes in the Arabic language is immediacy. So one of the differences between wa and fa is fa happens sooner. Fa happens quicker. So one of the benefits of that is that the dua of Allah is, the dua made to Allah sincerely is answered in a speedy way. The other benefit of the fa is what's called fa al-fa al sababiyah A fa of ca- causality, which means in simple, it's okay. Elders, it's okay. So, wait, I'll wait. Alright. Some things you can't change. So you just got to smile about it. That's it. Okay. At least it's not in the first row. Because I've had that before. <laughs> so anyway, so the fa al faa sababiyah what that roughly translates into English is therefore. So fa hazamuhum bi therefore, and then the rest of the ayah. That's also beautiful because now Allah is teaching us that it's the sincere dua that led to whatever is coming in the ayah. That is as a result of that, that whatever is coming is coming. Now, what is coming is the word Hazamuhum. Now, in Arabic, to defeat one over the other, for one party to dominate the other, you can say Ghalaba. Ghalabuhum. They dominated them. Okay? Uh, You could also say, you know, Avharu. Avharu alayhim tadhaharu alayhim there several like words available to talk about domination of one group over the other actually we just heard one we heard kam min fi'atin qalilat in ghalabat fi'atan katheerat bi'iznillah galaba was used but now allah doesn't say fa galabuhum fa galabu alayhim bi'iznillah no actually fa hazamuhum bi'iznillah hazima in arabic is used also for calamity but in hazama is when something falls apart and hazama, the, the muta'addi form, is used when something is held in the hand and completely crushed. So by the time you open your fist, there is nothing left; it's just falling apart. In a in a hadith describing the word hazam, it's actually used for you know the place where the water of Zamzam comes out. In a hadith, the, the you know it's called hazam Jibril. In other words, Jibril alayhi salam struck his foot there, or he struck that part, and the earth sunk in and it broke; its face broke. They say. Qasara wajhuhah in in the Sahara Al Arab describing the, the event itself the face of the earth broke and then the Zamzam water came out in other words it was completely destroyed that part of the, the, the earth for Zamzam water to come out it was completely submitted so this word is used not just for just defeat because you know defeat could be like it went twenty rounds and then eventually one side wins and you barely won some of you that play video games you know you're trying to beat this boss and you got like 1% life left, and it could go either way, and all of a sudden you hit X at the right second, and you won. That's not hazima, But you know when you win like a perfect, and they didn't even touch you, you destroyed the enemy, that's hazima, Like it just completely annihilated, destroyed, wrecked the enemy. Which is remarkable language, because from what we've been hearing in the previous discussion on this ayah, they were completely outmatched. So what? How in the world? Fahazamuhum, and it's described very simply. Fahazamuhum bi Here's the rationale by Allah's permission. So there are two things here: the du'a, and then they were able to defeat them. And right after, you give them credit bi ibnillah. Now, Allah Azza wa Jalla could Himself have said that Allah defeated them. Fahazamuhumullahu. Allah defeated them, but they are made the fa'il. They're the, they're the subject, they defeated the enemy And then Allah adds, by Allah's permission Now what's the difference between saying Allah defeated them And they defeated them by Allah's permission The difference is actually huge On the one hand there are people who make dua And then they expect Allah to do everything I made lots of dua and Allah should do the rest Everything should fall into place I'm making dua to Allah that I get a job I'm making dua every single day I stay in the masjid extra I And mean, you ask the brother Have you made a resume? No, but I have made lots of dua I haven't made a resume though Have you, have you, you know, submitted any applications? No, but I've submitted a lot of supplications That should be good enough <laughs> you know. Actually, you've got to have There's two sides of this They had to go and fight the enemy They had to be the fa'il of the act They had to be the doer, the subject of the verb They had to go and engage But whatever they did could not have happened until Allah's permission came So now we're learning these two sides of the equation that are necessary Two sides of the equation is Allah's help will not come just from dua Allah's help comes once you make sincere dua and then apply yourself Throw yourself in the battlefield, go for it Go for it and then Allah's help will come So this is actually a very powerful balance in the Muslim attitude that if you don't find that balance, there are two diseases that happen. On the one hand, you get the disease of paralysis. In other words, a person just prays and prays and prays, and does nothing else, and then they wonder why Allah is not answering their prayers, and then they get frustrated with Allah. I made so much dua, nothing happened. Nothing's happening. Well, what do you do? What other than than ibadah and dua are you doing? Are you actually trying also or no? You just expect everything to fall into your lap. On the other hand, there are people who are, mashallah, very successful. They have, you know They go into an interview, they don't even ask for a second interview, they give you the job. They go into a business, it's like they got the golden touch, they touch anything, the business flies. Three other people tried to open the same restaurant, it failed, this guy opened it, it's the top selling restaurant. Right? There are some people who just, business is good and everything they touch, it's awesome. Right? every deal they make every every investment they make every financial transaction they make success after success after success if you meet a lot of success continuously what starts happening you start thinking i got the golden touch it's happening because of me i mean i have i have really good strategy i'm really smart i make some really good investments i thought about this from every angle and therefore i'm getting success so on the one hand there's someone who says allah will do everything i have i can do anything i can't do anything on the other hand there's the guy that says actually i do everything I'm the one who does everything. What do you mean Allah does it? I did it. That's the, that's the other side of it. What's the balance in between? We do everything we can, but none of it works until Allah lets it work. And Allah will not input His ivn on something that you, when you don't apply yourself first. As an example to a student, you're not gonna get better grades, you're not gonna understand a subject. You know, you're, you're learning like some, some of our students, mashallah, now they're learning sarf, sarf, and some of the difficulties in surf. Student looks at that lesson and says, This is hard man, it's like, Only Allah can help me now. No, actually Allah will help you if you review, And you go over it again, And you ask a lot of questions, And actually do your homework, And ask for additional help, And you apply yourself, Then yes, there are knots in your mind, That Allah will untie. But if you don't apply yourself, They will remain locked, And you'll say, Allah hasn't hit me with the lightning bolt, Of understanding yet, So I'm just going to wait it out doesn't work that way. This is captured inside. Fahaza بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ And then, very simply, it's not like this elaborate details of the battle. By the way, in Jewish history, in Jewish record, in the Old Testament, in, you know, in uh, the rabbinical literature, there is pages after pages after pages about this battle. It's extensive. It's extensive. But Allah in the Qur'an gives you the... Exact information you need to capture the entire historical event perfectly. First of all, they crushed them by Allah's permission. The question arises: How? Now, Allah gives you the reason how everything happened. It's very concise. It's one of the beauties of Quran. It's very concise language. Wa qatalla Jaluta. Daud killed Jalut. This is actually the first mention of Daud. So far, we had Talut. We had Yuhum. We didn't have this man named Dawud If you look at the Isra'iliyat and some of the riwayat you find That on their way to the battlefield They run into this young man Some even argue a boy at the age Who was a shepherd And he said, what are you people doing? And they said, we're, you know, we're heading off to fight this battle And he said, well, you know, I'm pretty good with my slingshot And some of the soldiers laughed Like, what are you going to do with a slingshot? He goes, I'm pretty good with my aim I can knock out the teeth of a wolf from a distance I could aim at which tooth <laughs> So he was a sniper with a, with a slingshot, basically right? So they, they say, okay, why don't you come along It's just humoring him And Jalud, Goliath in the biblical narrative Goliath is a massive figure Who's got armor all around The only thing visible is his eyes Like just his holes for the eyes You've seen this ancient Roman like uh, armor right? They put the whole helmet on They put the thing on top And there's a the little tiny line from which the eyes can be seen right? So he's completely protected So the, the, the narrative from the Jewish accounts is That he used his slingshot And it went right through that part And went through his skull And he fell right there Before the battle even started Like this was the most intimidating figure It was called a giant among men Goliath right? Even to this day in English literature When is Goliath you, Jalut When is the term used? For a massive figure You know, I remember back in the day when I was growing up Andre the giant used to be called Goliath You know Because he's this big giant dude And he, the battle hasn't even begun And this is your fearless leader All the other soldiers behind him Are fearless because of This guy, their, their confidence comes from their leader And the leader has fallen What happens to the rest of the army? Headless chicken They're running all over the place What's going to happen? Who's our leader? And you know, at the right moment This is right before the two sides go into battle all of these details don't have to be mentioned. You know why? Because Allah Azza wa Jal revealed these ayat Surah Al-Baqarah, and that one of the primary audiences of Surah Al-Baqarah is the Jews. And the Jews, many of whom know this detailed history extensively, and are baffled at the fact that when one ayah comes, and takes that entire eight chapters of Jewish history, and puts it in one ayah, فَهَزَمُوهُمْ بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ وَقَتَلَ داود داود killed Jalut And that's actually a rationale for why they were able to destroy them to begin with. And then immediately after, obviously there are now three figures, and there's a lot of political turmoil. We learned that there are a bunch of people looking for power. We learned there's a Nabi. We learned there's a general, new general now named Talut. And now there's a war hero, Dawud. Allah says, وَأَتَاهُ اللَّهُ mulk, And Allah gave him kingdom. Allah gave him authority. So the entire discourse of the, you know, the political ups and downs, and who's going to be put in charge, and all of that, is solved by Allah, what eventually happened was Da'ud was given the khilaf and fil. Now we if we take the Jewish accounts, he's a young man at the time. And for a young man to have kingdom, that's kinda challenging, isn't it? A lot of times even in modern politics, what's one of the biggest criticisms against a young politician? Not his credentials, not his education, but his age. You're not experienced enough. So Allah Azza Wa جل says, well, By the way, why do they say age? Why do you have to have more age to be a successful political figure, a leader, a king, a ruler? Experience, wisdom. Wisdom comes with age. Look, knowledge can come at a young age. But wisdom comes at an old age. Young people can learn very quickly. They can memorize things very quickly. But older people have, even if they learn less, they apply it with a lot of wisdom. So wisdom takes experience and time and, you know, it it, it's, it requires its own process. Allah Azza wa Jalla compensates for that so beautifully in the ayah. He says, "Wa qatla jalut wa Mulk wal Allah gave him kingdom, and He gave him wisdom. Now, what doesn't come necessarily with youth? Wisdom. What do you definitely need if you're going to run a nation? If you're going to have mulk, you're going to need hikmah. So Allah gave him what he needs. He gave him what he needs to run the, you know, be the Imam of the entire nation, be the Khalifa of the entire nation. SubhanAllah, Allah equipped him with these things. In other words, this is also a reference to the Nubuwa. But look, Allah could have said, وَأَتَاهُ اللَّهُ wal <وَالْوحيَة> He could have said, wahy is also hikmah, revelation itself. But Allah ha- highlighted an aspect of revelation that is directly necessary for governance, for, for rulership hikma, And hikmah is interesting also because from it we get another word in the Arabic language which is hukum. Hukum means governance and rulership itself. A hakim and a hakim are sometimes interchangeable in Arabic literature. Hakim is a ruler, hakim is someone who's wise. But actually they're interchangeable. And you know why in, even in, in, some, in, in the Indian subcontinent, hakim is the doctor also? Right? Why, why is he called hakim? Because he gives you instructions. He gives you a hukum of what to get what instruct you know, what, what medication to get. That's why it's called, and also of course because he has wisdom to tell you what's wrong with you, etc. Right? Now the idea here, well, hikmah, one more thing about al Hikmah is the, the wisdom that is not just abstract, the wisdom to make the right kinds of decisions. To make the right kinds of decisions. You know, wisdom is described in many cultures as different things. For example, if you study philosophy, one of the most asked questions in, in comparative philosophy is How do you define wisdom? What is wisdom? You know? And the, the Arabic definition of it from a, just a linguistic perspective is really interesting the Wisdom is the ability to make the right decisions That's wisdom, it's simple The ability to make the right decisions To have beneficial knowledge and to act on it in a way that is beneficial That's wisdom, simple definition so it's practical in nature. You know for some people wisdom is how, much, how many big words can you use? For some other people how much poetry can you recite that nobody understands except you? And say some things like deep things like man this guy is deep man, he's wise. That's wise, nobody gets it but he's wise man. Just, the fact that you don't get it must be a sign that it's wise. But actually for the Arab it's a sign of its practicality. Can you take knowledge, process it in a way that can immediately lead to something beneficial? Practical. This, this is what hikmah is. So, wa atahullahul mulka wal This is also beautiful because one of the interpretations of, you know, والحكمة, one of the interpretations of that is very common in tafaseer is, al kitab is Quran, that the Prophet was taught the Quran, al hikmah is the sunnah. Now, al Quran is the, the, the theory. And what's the sunnah? The application. You have to have a lot of wisdom to take the theory, the word, the teachings and to apply them practically And that's what the sunnah is So it's a beautiful like correlation Between the application and the, the teaching itself Al-kitabah wal-hikmah Anyhow min mimma yasha' And on top of that He taught him from whatever he had wanted And this is interesting Because right? it's ambiguous It's ibham So he means Allah taught him from Things that whatever things he wanted And so we're going to learn later in Quran That Daud alayhi salam was taught how to make armor he was taught how to make bulletproof or arrowproof or spearproof vests. This is something Allah revealed to him. You know, in the Quran, there are certain things of architectural nature, of design, engineering nature that are revealed. You know, and some, some people, a lot of people don't know. Clothing, for example, the design for clothing, clothing itself was revealed by Allah. Okay? <laughs> we sent clothing down on you. Like revelation is given, clothing is given. The architecture for the ship that was to be built by Nuh Salam was revealed. Even actually, He's building the the ark under our watch, and Allah is literally guiding him where every you know where every nail goes, where every plank goes, where everything goes. Allah is designing the whole thing. The blueprint is being revealed to Nuh Salam. He's got no experience building a ship. He's being given, do this, do this, do this You ever seen like Legos, would put this piece here, put that piece there <laughs> But imagine it's being revealed to Nuh <laughs> like that And then you have Dawood salam, <laughs> He was given the ability to manipulate metal And to mold it into, you know, armor for, for so. it's pretty interesting, right? Because he actually took on a king that was laced with armor And yet Allah revealed to him the best kind of armor to produce you know, this is one of the things Allah revealed to him. Among other things, like you, for example, the, the mountains would sing alongside with him. He gave him a kind of ability, you know, that when he, would, when he would sing the praises of Allah, and he would recite the praises of Allah, birds would sing alongside with him. Allah taught him some interesting, really unique things. There's the qualities of Dawud <laughs> Then we'll find in Qur'an later on, Dawud <laughs> learned also, uh, uh, you know, lessons in, in judgment. Like Allah refined him as a judge. So there was the incident of the people who you know, bust, burst into his inner quarters Obviously he's the king And the king's private bedroom Or his prayer space, his mihrab Is one of the most secure parts of the castle Guards outside, one of the top floors In a fort itself Accessing that place is easy or difficult It's almost impossible And all of a sudden he turns around There's a bunch of guys standing there Oh we got a case, I need you to solve this case now when you find strangers in the king's quarters, in his bedroom, or in his prayer space, in his bihrab What are you going to think? These guys are here to ask an innocent question? No, how do they bypass all that security? Defeat all the guards, or circumvent all the guards, covert, without being detected And show up inside his private quarters, they must be there to kill him So his first reaction is, he's like, oh this is, this is bad He's thrown off And then Allah through that Actually through that experience He teaches him one of the most important lessons In being a fair judge Because when a judge is shocked Or when a judge is afraid When a judge is emotionally not stable Then he shouldn't be making judgments Because that can, his emotional state can affect How they're going to judge between two people And that's actually what happened And the moment he passed judgment They disappeared And he realized Oh, shouldn't have done that Shouldn't have passed judgment in that state You know so Allah taught him many unique things, and some of them we will find in the Qur'an, and it's beautiful that in the order of the Mus'haf, Allah creates that curiosity here. What's above? Beyond hikmah, which we can understand, related to what? What else is he going to teach Dawud alayhi salam? So it makes you curious to want to go into a query, like into a, a, an inquiry, about Dawud alayhi salam and the rest of Qur'an, and what is it that Allah azza wa is going to teach him. Now the, the last part of this ayah walaw la Allah what a beautiful expression and had it not been for Allah pushing dafa dafa it means to push of Allah pushing people and the idhafa and then a maf'ul bihi strange grammar actually dafa mudaf lafzul jala mudaf ilayhi al-nasa maf'ulun bihi lil masdar lil mudaf that's why an nasa is mansub It's got kind of a fatha on it what does that indicate rhetorically? It means Allah has a constant principle that isn't just in the past, it will always be there and that is Allah pushes people out of power and replaces them with other people. Allah will take one government and replace it with another government. Allah will take one administration replace it with another administration. Allah will take one empire and replace it with another empire. Allah will take one dynasty and replace it with another dynasty. Allah will take one superpower. And replace it with another superpower. Allah will give one nation economic strength. Then Allah will give another nation economic strength. Allah will give one nation military strength. Then Allah will give another nation military strength. It's incredible how Allah does this. Had Allah not been pushing people out, some through the others, some with the others, people replacing governments, replacing other governments, powers, power structures replacing other power structures, what does He say? The earth would have been corrupted altogether In other words When one entity remains in power for too long What happens over time? Power corrupts Absolute power corrupts? Absolutely Over time Nations get corrupted And more corrupted And more corrupted And so they have to be cleansed And taken out Now if you apply this principle To Muslim history Forget everybody else's history If you apply this principle To Muslim history We had the most pristine form of government The Khilafah we had the Khilafah, the Khulafa, Rashidin, Al-Mahdiyin. And you'll notice after that, as the other govern- governments of the, of the Muslim world come, you'll notice one thing that history cannot hide, corruption. It can't hide it, it's there. It's in your face. And as the ages progress, the corruption gets better or worse? It gets worse. Until the point where Muslims are completely, by Allah, pushed out of power. By Allah, they're, pu- they're taken out of power. And Allah is saying, if you were to stay in power, what would happen? The earth itself would be corrupted. Now imagine if Muslims are in power, but Muslims are also corrupt. Then you know what happens? The world itself will see Islam as oppression, not as the deen of truth, not as a religion of justice, not as a religion of mercy and love, not as a religion that came to save humanity. If the Muslims are in power, and they're also corrupt. So until Muslims learn to lose their corruption, and then get rid of the other corruption that has come out in place Until they do that, and until they fight corruption itself They are going to remain a part of the problem and they're going to remain pushed out Well one of the principles in this ayah of power How does Allah grant any nation power? We can't get power These people can't kill Jalut They can't defeat the army So how does the Muslim, the Ummah come back to its, its place? How does it return to its original state? We ask ourselves that question all the time. One of the principles behind this revival of the ummah is Allah says you have to fight what? Corruption. Otherwise, you'll, you'll stay pushed out. You, you don't deserve the position of power. Sometimes, wallahi, I wonder. I wonder. I, 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 when we come to the United States, and we, we, you know, we can talk about political corruption in the US, but if, I, if you're a Pakistani like me, it's really hard for you to talk about political corruption in the US. Because what we got is amazing, it's like on another level And wallahi wallahi sometimes I wonder, you know Muslims are so hungry to get power So hungry to have government Sometimes I'm grateful to Allah that we don't have government Because the way we are right now I don't know if (laughs) I would want to live under Muslims As we are right now We got to figure some other stuff out first there are basic principles of justice and fairness and ethics that we have completely overlooked in our communities, in our societies. We have to fix that first before we become the ahl, before we become qualified to actually run society, to be in any place of political power. That's, we can't even manage institutional, we can't even control institutional corruption. Many places we can't even control corruption inside a masjid, inside an Islamic school. We can't even control corruption inside like a small business, a grocery store. We can't even control that. We can't control corruption inside a family. What are you talking about taking over entire countries? What are you talking about? What planet are you living on? La Fasa Ard, Allah and Allah adds this, <laughs> what a beautiful conclusion. However, on the contrary, Allah keeps pushing people out. And had He not done so, the earth would have been corrupted. However, no, Allah wouldn't let that happen. Allah will keep people pushing people out of power when their corruption gets out of hand because Allah is a possessor of great favor to all nations, al-alamin. Al-alamin, all nations, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, Hindu, atheist, Buddhist, you name it. Allah is has great favor to All of them, Allah is concerned about all of humanity, and so one nation or one power, when it gets too far, then all nations are in danger. So Allah keeps pushing them off for the sake of not just Muslims, but for the sake of the world altogether. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. Allah is not just watching out for Muslims, He's watching out for all humanity. It's incredible how Allah ends this ayah. May Allah help us appreciate the wisdom of this beautiful Qur'an and help us become the generation and raise the generation that fights against the corruption within our own community, within our own families, community and, and ummah, and then beyond that in the world. Barakallahu li wa lakum fil quran al-Hakim wa nafa'ani wa iyaakum bil-ayati wa dhikru al-Hakim as alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh Tilka ayatullahi natluha alayka bil-haqq Those are the miraculous signs that we are reciting unto you with purpose. وَإِنَّكَ لَمِنَ الْمُرْسَلِينَ And you are no doubt from those who have been sent. This kind of intricate detail about the history of Bani Israel was only known to the top brass scholarship of Bani Israel. So when they heard this conversation about Talut, Jalut, the river, some of them drank. Uh, Dawood jalud, then Allah gave him kingdom. These are historical, very very like, intricate details in Bani Israel's history, where 300-400 pages of chapters are written, and if you ask a scholar to summarize them, he'll probably reduce them to 50 pages. Quran did that in three ayat. It summarized the entire historical account in three or four ayat. They're looking at it like, and he got all of it right. Every one of those points, those finer points in our books, he got them right, and so Allah says, those are the ayat we're reading on. luha alaika, عَلَيْكَ We're reading them onto you. You're not reading the ayat, we're making you read them. We're reading them onto you with purpose. And you definitely, there's no way you would know this stuff except that you are from those who have been sent. وَإِنَّكَ laminal It validates the, the authenticity of Allah's Messenger wasallam. And that is not to say that we don't honor previous messengers. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم. تلك فضلنا بعضهم على بعض. منهم من الله ورفع بعضهم ولو شاء الله نقتتل ولكن الله يفعل ما يريد. رب الشح لي صدري ويسل لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي. فالحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن وله ثم بعد. إن We're beginning. What is now the third juz of the Quran, and we're still, of course, in baqarah and the conversation, the the passage that dealt with the story of Talut and Jalut and that reminder using the story of the Israelites to the believers that their brother is on its way has just finished. We hope today in in, uh, today's uh, gathering also to finish Surat Al-Baqarah and start Al-Imran. So it's quite an ambitious goal ahead of ourselves. One of the things that should be mentioned is that Surat Al-Baqarah contains pre brother commentary for the most part, the, the, the Badr commentary, the fighting commentary we do find in Baqarah is before the Battle of Badr, it's preparatory in nature. But since, you know, the first half of the Surah almost was one of the main sections of that first half was dedicated to criticizing Bani Israel, and then at the end of that now, when we're, look, when we're told to look for role models, we're also looked to, told to look inside Bani Israel Talut and Jalut and the believers who follow Talut salam, all of that is also still from Bani Israel so the Muslims are being given a sense of clarity that the prophets, all the prophets are prophets of Islam and all of them are role models and yes there are rankings among them so that we, sh- we shouldn't have a selective attitude when it comes to prophets <coughs> this was a big problem of, prof- of the nations of the past they were selective in their, in their recognition in their honoring, in their regard for the prophets the, the Jewish problem on the one hand was to disregard Isa Alayhi outright, and among other things to disregard the instructions of previous messengers as we saw. The Christian problem was of having so much regard for Isa Alayhi salam that pretty much all of the prophets, past and future, become irrelevant. Because they just become, uh, you know, their, their value becomes obliterated in light of how much honor or how much uh, importance theologically they gave to Isa Alayhi but what's the middle attitude that the Muslim is supposed to carry? Those in fact are the messengers. Or those messengers are in fact the ones. We gave preference to some over, over others. Tafdeel in Arabic is to give someone a higher rank or preference or importance. And Allah says He Himself gave this kind of preference. I mentioned this in brief before, but it should be mentioned now again. There are two concepts regarding our attitude towards the Prophets that are going to be talked about in this surah. There's tafriq and there's tafdeel. And tafriq is to say I believe in Prophet A, B, C, D, E and I do not believe in Prophet F. He's not a prophet. That's tafriq. So Allah teaches us to say لا نفرق بين أحد من We don't make any distinction, any tafriq between any one of his Prophets. We don't do that. The same way this concept of not making tafriq was already declared previously That entire conversation, tell them uh, all of you should say we've come to believe in Allah and what was revealed to us and what was revealed to and all of the Prophet's names are mentioned and then the beginning and end of the Bani Israel chain what was given to Musa and what was given to Isa that starts and ends the legacy of Bani Israel, all of those prophets, we have regard for all of them, we don't make that distinction however the concept of tafdeel is still there, within Islam for instance we have the concept of ulul azmi min al-rusul the messengers that had great resolve, that had incredible commitment that are showcased more than any other prophet in the Quran or or all the other prophets in the Quran there are, there are so many more messengers and prophets that Allah sent because Allah sent them to every nation as we'll learn later on in the Qur'an. Not all of them are highlighted in the Qur'an. You know, sometimes their prophets mentioned they're not even mentioned by name. As we saw, وَقَالَ لَهُمْ نَبِيُّهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ qad بَعَفَ لَكُمْ Some prophets are mentioned, their, their names aren't even mentioned. So yes, there are some prophets, Allah honored their mention in the Qur'an and He highlighted their stories more than others. This is tafdeel. But even this is not something you and I can do. This is something Allah does. This is something Allah does. And of course the tafdeel, the preference given to the messenger of Allah the final messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam was established in the Mi'raj also. You know when he led all the previous prophets in prayer. So his 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 ranking has been established. And of course other places in the Quran will help us understand how the, the our messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam enjoys a unique place in that in that chain. But keep in mind that this conversation is with the, the, the Jewish community still. They're still involved in the, and they're hearing this message. So appreciate what is coming. Minhum man Among them is someone who spoke to Allah. Meaning, Musa salam. Immediately when they hear, well, even the member of Bani Israel hears they're recognizing this is about Musa alayhi salam. وَرَفَعَ بَعْضَهُمْ دَرَجَاتٍ And we elevated others in some other ranks also. And immediately from there, وَآتَيْنَا عِسَ مَرْيَمَ الْبَيِّنَاتِ And we gave Isa, the son of Maryam, all kinds of, or, or multiple miraculous proofs, or clear proofs, الْبَيِّنَاتِ Immediately Isa alayhi salam is mentioned. Because the kufr of Bani Israel did not start with Muhammad sallallahu alayhi salam. This is not the first prophet that they rejected as being a prophet. The first prophet they actually rejected was Isa alayhi salam. Though previous Prophets they believed in, they accepted them as Prophets and still disregarded them as they did with Musa salam, the outright rejection of a Prophet of theirs began with Isa alayhi salam. So Allah mentions that. مَرْيَبَ الْبَيِّنَاتِ وَأَيَّدْنَاهُ بِرُوحِ الْقُدُسِ And we aided him with ruh al Now Allah also mentions here ruh al and the significance of that is they asked the Messenger of Allah, well which angel brings you revelation, huh? And the messenger told them, it's Jibril alayhi salam al Qudus. I said, Oh, we have a problem with him. That's the same one with Isa alayhi salam. Oh, he claimed that too. Yeah, no, that's not gonna work for us. So Allah says, Nope, that's this this is the same messenger that you already not just this messenger, meaning Muhammad Rasulullah. There's another kind of messenger. The angel's also a messenger. The angel are also also Rasul, because they deliver a message, and of course the most uh, active of those messengers is Jibreel السلام, when it comes to revelation. So you've also denied that messenger too. We aided him with Ruhul Qudus. And had Allah wanted, they wouldn't have fought each other or fought within uh, much after them. مَ جَاءَ مُ... Even after the clearest proofs had come to them. Iqtital is a very interesting word in Arabic. Allah didn't say walaw ما maqtalu, ما قتلوا قتل يقتلوا to kill, to fight, or qatalu even, iqtatala, to fight oneself. And so Allah is saying they, would, they wouldn't they would end up fighting each other within themselves, even after proofs came to them, walakin ikhtalafu, however they fell into disagreement. And of course... The previous ayah, the ayat al that we already read, nasu wa That ayah has already come. This is being summarized now. Allah here tells us, however, they fell into disagreement. Had Allah wanted, they wouldn't have fallen into disagreement. What we're learning here is, because of the prophets coming, all of these different prophets, they're supposed to be unifiers. And people, even though these prophets are supposed to be unifiers, because they come... And then Ali Imran will learn, how are the unifiers? That question is created here, the answer will come in Ali Imran. How are Prophet's unifiers? Because each one of them comes and tells you, the previous one before me was also legitimate, and I'm here to confirm his message. I'm not here to insult the previous, or nullify the previous, I'm here to confirm what the previous one said. So they unified and strengthened the same message. This is what Allah uses, the verb used in this surah is, قَفَّيْنَا min بَعْدِهِ bilrusul. Qaffa yuqaffi To strengthen, to reinforce. Even after him, different messengers came and reinforced the same message of Musa Alayhis You know why that's important to mention? Because nowadays we find a, a unique movement within religious traditions, modern religious discourse, and it's not just limited to Islam. And the idea is, well, God is one. And the, you know, we're all just under, you know, one, one people under God. And it's these prophets or these religious figures that make us different. So, you know, you have more regard for Jesus, I more for Moses, he more for Abraham, he more for Muhammad wasallam, or وسلم, or this one more for, you know, whatever other religious figure, they may be in Sikhism or Hinduism. It's these people that make us different, otherwise we're all just children of God. You know, that term is used. So, the prophets are seen as a means of dividing people. And Allah's argument in this surah is, or in this ayah is, that actually the Prophets came and the purpose of the Prophets coming was to unify people. It is people that fell into disagreement. Had they actually regarded and respected what the Prophets have to bring, there would have been unity. It is a lack of loyalty to the Prophets that led to disunity. Not that, you, you know, because we have regard for different Prophets that it created disunity. So, what شَاءَ Allah Had Allah wanted, نَقْتَتَلَ الَّذِينَ مِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ مِنْ, مِن, مِن, uh, مِن بَعْدِ جَاءَتْهُمُ الْبَيِّنَاتِ وَلَكِنْ اِخْتَلَفُوا then among them is, are those who disbelieved, as someone who dis, or believed, and among them is someone who disbelieved. Here, particularly, it's disbelief in prophets. And that's a really important lesson of the surah. <clears throat> the thing the aspect of Iman that is highlighted in this surah more than any other is Iman in prophets. It's brought up in different ways, from the very beginning. الَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِالْغَيْبِ You know, from, from that time. وَالَّذِينَ يُؤْمِنُونَ بِمَا أُنزِلَ إِلَيْكَ وَمَا أُنزِلَ مِنْ قَبْلِكَ Revelation. That's belief in prophets. Then, Adam was told, guidance will come to you from me. That will be, guidance will come by what means? By means of prophets. Then the prophet Musa came and people didn't meet the expectations Allah had of them. When Musa came, a disregard of the prophet's you know, expectations. Then, يَقْتُلُونَ النَّبِيِّينَ بِغَيْرِ حَقِّينَ They kill prophets without having any right to do so. Then, أَمْ تُلِدُونَ أَن تَسْأَلُوا رَسُولَكُمْ That entire conversation and then you intend to question your messenger. What about the legacy of Ibrahim a.s. Then the change of the Qibla which is also a test of loyalty to the Prophet This entire running, one of the main running themes and the thing we're learning not to, the pitfall not to fall into that Bani Israel fell into is loyalty to prophets. And so that's a central component of Iman. Belief in Prophets. And it's almost, you know, I feel almost undermined in, in modern discourse, even within Muslims. When we talk about Aqidah, when we talk about theology, most of the time we talk about the names and attributes of Allah. We talk about But that's one component of Aqidah. Aqidah is three things at least. On the one hand, it's a set of beliefs we have about Allah Himself. Then it's a set of beliefs we have about the Prophet and the Prophets. All of them. And then it's a set of beliefs about the Akhira. What do we believe will happen after death? What exactly are our beliefs after? These are the three components of the unseen. Iman Billah, Iman bil Risala, Iman bil akhirah. So when you study Quran in a theological sense, in an Imani sense, then every time you study something about Iman, it will fall into one of these three things. I'll repeat them. Either Iman Billah, Iman in Allah, something to do with Iman in Allah, then something to do with Iman bil, Al Iman bil Risala, Believing in the message. When I say message, it's three things, by the way. Sub-items sub under that three things are the angels, the, the revelation itself, the book, and the people that receive that book. So we have a certain attitude towards the angels. We have a certain attitude and certain you know relationship with revelation itself, the message itself. And then we have a particular, very set parameters of a relationship with those who receive that message, the prophets themselves. You know, that's a study in and of itself. What does it mean to respect prophets? What does it mean to be loyal to them? What does it mean that we, you know, we committed to their sunnah? Or the sunnah of our final messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. These are particular studies. And then eventually, of course, the afterlife. Because what makes religions mostly different are these three things. Either they believe something different about God, or they believe something different about revelation, or the idea of angels, or the idea of revelation, the idea of messengers. Maybe they believe in messengers, but they have twisted beliefs about messengers. That happens. Or, of course, they have weird beliefs or, or deviated beliefs about the afterlife. Maybe what was sent to them originally was the correct concept of the Akhirah, and then other things got con, you know, contaminated, that original belief, and deviations occurred. So these are the three things that keep getting highlighted. And in this surah, the clarification, at least for the most part, comes in the belief in Risalah. And it will culminate itself, the climax of it will be at the end of this surah, which is actually a pretty amazing du'a. That, that, then we're going to see one of the main components of our belief in Risalah Insha'Allah ta'ala So, Allah Allah adds again And had Allah wanted, they wouldn't have fought each other At all You know When I read this ayah uh, After, you know uh, You know, I go around studying different parts of Quran You know, that you feel guilty that you haven't studied some part you've studied before So you go back to it again And subhanAllah, when I was reading this ayah again it just a, a bell rung in my head All over when I, would, I travel, people ask me a similar question. I get one similar question a lot of times. And that is, brother, if Islam is the truth, why are people fighting each other? Why do Muslims hate each other? Why are there so many differences of opinion? Why are there so many schools of different, different schools of thought? Why does this scholar say that one's going to hell and that scholar says this one's going to hell? We're not the first ones to do that, guys. But Islam already been done that did it. They've, and Allah says, had Allah wanted, they wouldn't have done it. But they did and they fell into disagreement. And here he didn't say why, because he already told us why before. Bainahum, you remember that? Out of an urge to dominate each other. Out of an urge to have more control, more legitimacy, more ranking, more profile among the people. However Allah does, Allah himself he does what he wants. In other words, you have no right to question the wisdom in Allah's plans. You yaf'alu. He just does it. That's it. And here Allah is mentioned twice. Wa and then yaf'alu. It's jumla ismiya. So he's mentioned twice. It is in fact Allah that he does in fact what he wants. You have no right or no say in that. Ya amanu Those of you who have iman, spend. You know the loyalty to the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam was mainly tested in two things. Was the main test of the Prophet's loyalty was in two things fighting in Allah's path for the people who first believed in him they had to give up the their luxuries of their life and the calm you know relaxed, chills, the lifestyle that they had and they had to give that up and go on in the battlefield even those of them that had no exposure before to battle were tested like that and of course in order to go to battle, I told you this before, you have to spend a lot of money to prepare an army so their finances were tested. These were the two practical tests of loyalty. These were the two consistent constant tests of loyalty and so immediately after this, Ya أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ Amanu Allah is not asking for the funds, the Prophet is. They don't see Allah asking, they only see the Prophet asking. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And, they, have to, and they, don't, they can't make assumptions about him that he has alternative motives, ulterior motives, which the hypocrites do think. And they do make that accusation later on. But now Allah gives them another motivation for spending in Allah's path, and that is, أَنْفِقُوا مِمَّا رَزَقْنَاكُمْ مِنْ قَبْلِ أَنْ يَأْتِيَ يَوْمُ Spend from whatever we have provided all of you and you know, it's, it's so beautiful that Allah says that spend from what we've provided you Because it's not yours. We're the ones who gave it to you and now we're asking for it back Min qabli an before a day comes La bay'un fihi, There will be no trade in it. Allah didn't say there will be absolutely no trade in it He just said there will be no trade la The tanween here bay'un leaves an exception had it been, لا بيا لا نافع there would be no room for exception. And so in Surah al we're going to learn, ان الله اشترى من المؤمنين انفسهم وأموالهم بان لهم الجنه. And at the end of that long ayah, that same promise, عَلَيْهِ حَقًا فِي وَالإنجيل وَالقُرآنِ And towards the end he says, فَاستَبْشِرُوا بِبَيْعِكُمُ بَيَعْتُمْ بِهِ Congratulations on the trade you just made, the sale you just made. On that day there won't be any sales. You won't be able to sell anything. And you know Allah mentions this, later on He mentions people actually trying to make sales on Judgment Day. A person's trying to sell his mother, a person's trying to sell his friend, a person's trying to sell his entire tribe and says, go ahead, please take them, let me go. In Surah Al-Imran, Allah will, Allah will teach us, even if somebody tried to sell the weight of the world in gold, Milul Ardi and maybe by that means he could be ransomed away. And he could pay that. He could sell that to Allah. And then he could escape. It won't be taken. You know, the earth is full of many valuable resources. And it's full of many not so valuable resources. Dirt is all around us. Allah says, if the entire earth was gold, it wasn't worth you being saved. That's not the price you're going to be able to pay. What an incredible statement. So, la bayun fihi. Then he says, وَلَا خُلَّةٌ And there won't be any friendship. Bani Israel believed that their prophets will come and make shafa'ah for them or the fact that they are the chosen nation Allah will just be an extra friend to them even though they've not been a very good friend to Allah they you know Allah will fulfill his part of the promise even though they haven't fulfilled their part of the promise bi ahdi ufi bi ahdikum we don't have to do that we got special status Allah says there won't be friendship on that day but here again khullatun khullatun is with tanween which means it leaves an exception you know there will be those who are befriended by Allah who are under one of the seven shades that the prophet describes sallallahu alaihi wasallam may Allah make us all from them وَلَا shafaatun? And there won't be any intercession. Nobody will come and make a case on your behalf. That's Shafa'ah. Shafa'ah will be clarified inshallah in the next ayah, more clear, you know, more explicitly. But Shafa'ah basically means somebody comes between you and Allah and says, yeah, Allah, this guy, you know, I know him personally. I know his record looks pretty bad, but he's really deep, deep down, is pretty good. You ever see that? Somebody's, you know, somebody's the events or the the, the footage looks bad, and then somebody comes to court and says, yes, he made a mistake. But, I know him since he was like eight, he's a good kid at heart, he's got this or that or the other, somebody comes and tries to make a case for him. This is shafa'a. Allah says, there won't be, overall, overall there won't be any shafa'a. And you know, m- believers, why would they need shafa'a? Muslims? And of course, we have shafa'ah, the exception is left by the Tenuin, And that's the shafa'a of the Prophet of Allah Why would we need shafa'a? Even those who do work for deen. Even those who do the work of da'wah, or they work in the Islamic cause, or they you know, they try to live a life and so they stay away from the haram, and they try to raise a good family. They, do good, they live a good life as Muslims. Even they, have they not made, don't they have shortcomings in what they did? Have they not had, you know, less than expected performance when it comes to their prayer, when it comes to their remembrance of Allah? I mean, who of us can say, I just finished duhur and it was perfect? I mean, I probably got like an A plus in this uh, the angels probably hey you got that one you know make sure you get this this was good it wasn't cuz our mind every other second it wanders which wudu was perfect which salah was perfect which dua our heart was actually entirely sincere you know even the good things we do have holes in them <laughs> i mean they're on top of the problem of our bad deeds it's even our good deeds aren't very good We'll even go do the most amazing good deeds like Hajj. And how many problems with our Hajj? How many times we complain in Hajj, lose our temper in Hajj? How many times our mind wanders in Hajj? So you, on the one hand, you might think, I should pat myself on the back, I just finished Hajj. On the other hand, you should worry, did Allah accept that or no? Was that good enough or no? So even our good deeds aren't that good. And so they alone aren't enough for us to be saved. So then the messenger comes along and says, Ya yeah, Allah, I have the, they have my promise. They had love and loyalty for me. They were with me. They didn't abandon this religion. They tried to hold on to it as best they could. So this is Shafa'ah. And this is the Shafa'ah that I pray all of us qualify for. From the Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Kafiruna And the deniers, they are in fact the ultimate wrongdoers. A Kafir here, once again, disbelievers in the Prophets. And you know specifically disbelieving in the Prophets at the end is... You know why that's important to mention? Because... Shafa'ah, you know, and then right after that, Al-Kafirun. The denier, the one who disbelieves will lose that pledge from the Prophet on Judgment Day. They don't qualify for that. So they're the ultimate wrongdoers. And the zhalim also, wrongdoing is to put something where it doesn't belong. Your friendships, your loyalties, your expectations... You know, your priorities went somewhere they didn't belong. That is a kafir. They're the ultimate wrongdoer. Allahu la ilaha illahu al al qayyum. Sayyidatu ayatul Quran kama wasafaha an Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The leader of the ayat of the Quran as the Prophet himself described this ayah that we're about to read, ayatul kursi. Ayatul Kursi is one of the great treasures of Tawheed in the Quran. It summarizes and sums up one of the, you know, some of the most fundamental beliefs we have about Allah. And what I want you to appreciate is where it's placed. Where it's placed. Where, you know, what we're learning here is all those Prophets taught the same thing about Allah. And if you had believed this very thing about Allah and you would have been in line with, uh, in line with the Prophets then you would have learned this fundamental lesson la ilaha Allah, there is no one worthy of worship or obedience in any way, shape, or form except He. The word ilah in Arabic has several meanings. Aliha Ya'lahu also means to love someone. Ma'luh is someone who's loved. And so an entity that is worthy of you know extreme love. Nobody deserves to be loved like him. La ilaha That's one of the meanings. Aliha means to lean towards someone. You know, when you get tired you lean on a wall. You lean on a couch, you lean on, you know, a cushion. When you're exhausted from life, who, do you, who are you supposed to lean on? Who are you supposed to turn on, turn to? It is Allah. Ilah also means an authority. It's got several comprehensive meanings. You know, in the, in the Quran, you find Allah says, uh, Allah quotes Fir'aun. Fir'aun, I mean, talk about a guy digging his hole deep, right? He calls himself Rab, that's bad enough. Then he calls himself Ilah. I mean, he really dug his hole deep. So he turns to his generals, his chiefs, he says, Ma lakum min ilahin ghayri. I don't know of any ilah for you other than myself. I don't know of any ilah for you other than myself. And he was talking to his generals. Now the issue, a lot of times it's translated as, I don't know of any god for you other than myself. It misses the point. You know, an ilah is someone that demands obedience too. Fir'aun does not get anything out of his generals praying to him. When they sit and do sajda to him, he gets nothing from that. When the sit make dua to him or make a shrine and put flowers around it and put chocolate milk in front of it, it doesn't help him. What helps Firaun? You know, Musa alayhi salam has come. The nine signs, one after the other, are coming. His generals are now wavering in their allegiances. They've already been shaken up by what's happened in the court in front of everybody when Firaun was humiliated by Musa alayhi salam. Their loyalties are already a little bit shaken. And so they think about maybe talking to Musa and saying, could you ask your Lord to maybe stop these signs? Like they're getting a little soft. Their allegiances and their loyalties to Firaun are weakening. And at that moment, Firaun turns to them and says, I don't know of any entity that should be obeyed for you other than myself. You need to keep yourself in check. Obey me. So it's a matter of worship, yes. Ilah is an entity that should be worshipped. But obedience is a separate matter and love is a separate matter and they're all included inside the meaning of Ilah. The same way, I'll give you another example in the Quran where Ilah, the meaning, the dominant meaning there is love and obedience. And that is Allah says, <clears throat> Have you seen the one who takes his empty desires, his temptations, and turns them into his Ilah? Allah uses the word Ilah there. He turns his empty desires and turns them into his Ilah. Now ask yourself this. What kind of desires? Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's lust. Is one of those desires. Do people pray to those desires? Do people worship those desires? Or do people obey those desires? Or do people love and obsess over those desires? That's what they do, right? They obey and love them. You know, their Hindus, for example, have the god Lakshmi, which is the god of wealth. Right? They, you could, they can, you know, make idols of it and pray to it or whatever. But really, what are they hoping for? Money. And there are people who don't have to have a Lakshmi in front of them. They could be working on Wall Street and still be mushrikun because they're, they're obeying or they're, they're enslaved to their thirst for money at whatever cost, right? This is an ilah. And this is a, an ilah that, desi- that desires uh, uh, or demands from you obedience. Like the Sprite commercial, obey your thirst, Right? Like that, just obey. It's coming to you, just obey it. And so, Allah is an entity that, that demands obedience. I, I highlight this because, you know, in most translations of la ilaha illallah, we find there is no one worthy of worship except Allah. And just goes on. First of all, there is no one worthy of worship, love, and obedience, in any way, shape, or form, other than He. That's La ilaha is La nafi jins is a fatha. Remember La bay'un, La khulla'tun, La shafa'atun, all had a tanween at La ilaha is a fatha in it. It's got an a'a in it. There's no what, none whatsoever. And you know why this is, this concept. Of Allah being the worthy entity worthy of worship and obedience and love in this absolute form, how does that play a practical difference in the life of a Muslim who understood La ilaha illallah to mean no one should be worshipped except Allah? So many people worship Allah but don't love Him. So many people worship Allah they don't obey Him. They don't obey Him. They'll pray. They worship Allah a lot. I met a guy just, just this last weekend. Craziest story. The guy's at the masjid all the time. He looks, I look liberal compared to him, let me just tell you. Right? Very conservative. And he got caught doing Medicaid fraud. The guy makes i'tikaf every year. He goes to hajj every year. He prays every day in the masjid. He stays after Allah, reciting Quran, and does, you know, ishraq prayer. And then he comes in, you know, every single salah in jama'ah, you know, religiously dressed. Very conservative. And yet, worshipping Allah... But when it comes to earning, not obeying Allah. Right? People make a distinction in their head between these two things. They can be very religious on the one side, very obedient in worship on the one side, and very disobedient in their family matters, in their business matters, in their professional life, in their financial life. I knew someone like that in, in when I was in college, who was actually he used to lead us in salah and stuff. It was not an imam, but he was used to lead us in salah well respected elder in the community and he used to sit and argue about there's no problem in us getting involved in Rabbah. It's, it's not the same Rabbah as back in the day, it's okay I was like, did you talk to a scholar about this? I don't need to talk to a scholar, it's okay why is it okay? because he had like 20 properties and he, there's a way he got them right? there's a way he got into that so on the one hand there's worship but there's no obedience so that meaning of la ilaha illallah needs to be highlighted someone shouldn't think they've done right with la ilaha illallah just by worshipping Allah they shouldn't think that there's a love matter, there's an obedience matter, there's a loyalty matter, and there's a worship matter. That's all included in La Ilaha Illallah. And this is actually last comment about this tangent, which it's an important tangent nonetheless. And the last comment about this tangent is this is what got the prophet in trouble. La Ilaha Illallah is what got the prophet in trouble. He was the nicest guy in his community. You couldn't find a nice and nicer person. You know the Arabs are really at that time the, the jahil Arabs are really like intense people. They don't like people easily. It's much easier for them to hate. I mean, they can, their tribes can go to war for decades over a sheep that was slapped. Right? They could do that. And for them to compliment the Prophet and call him honest and trustworthy is a big deal. It's a big deal for even the enemies of Islam to say you were the most beloved of us. You were awesome. When we had a problem, we used to come to you. We loved you. What did the Prophet do that's so, so mean and so offensive that all of a sudden overnight he becomes public enemy number one? What message is he saying? La ilaha illallah When you say ilah, You know the, the Arabs by the way enjoyed freedom of religion They enjoyed freedom of We think it's a modern concept, they enjoyed it You had like multiple idols in the mall You pick which one you want to pray to and which one you don't want to pray to, it's all good Or oh, you don't want to pray to any of them, that's fine too Do whatever you want The Prophet we know in his entire life, never committed shirk. He never committed shirk. There's no problem then. But the issue is, when he says there's no ilah except Allah, he's not just saying no one should be worshipped except Allah. Fine, you think so? That's fine. He said actually nobody should be obeyed except Allah too. Obeyed? Wait, our idols? We only worship them, the mushrik mind says. We only worship those idols, so after we make them happy, we can do whatever we want. That's the whole point of putting those idols there. We feel our guilty conscience is eased. Now we can do whatever we want. What do you mean there's an ilah? An ilah which we're going to have to obey in every sense. Because you know, they used to speak on behalf of those idols too. This God, he wants us to do this, this, this. He wants us to rob, pillage, kill, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They can put words in their false God's mouth. Now an ilah comes and he's asking, we can't put words in his mouth. He's got his own words. <laughs> This is way too much for us. This can't be accepted. It's gonna mess up the entire economy for God's sake. But think about that. The entire Mecca economy in the mind of the Mushrik Arab was, it's a tourist city. Everybody stops by, you know how you have to go through a security checkpoint? Right? Mecca was the security checkpoint because the Mushrik believed if I don't go through there and pay respects to the idol, then my trip will be bad, I'll get robbed on the way or whatever. So I'm going to go to this city, and I'm first going to go pay respects to my false god. All their idols were held hostage in Mecca. I'm going to do that first, and then go on to my trip. And when they go on to their trip, before they go on, of course, now that they've come and made a stop, and they've paid respects, they're going to buy something there. They're going to trade something there. It became a central economic city because it, it, it had central value because of those idols. How can we get rid of those idols? It's not just a religious problem. It's an economic problem. And if, if the economic power is gone, then we have no political power left. We have no social standing left. Nobody messes with us because the idols are here. They go and travel and somebody's about to rob them. They say, wait, Makkah, Which tribe are you from? Oh, you guys got that purple idol. Okay. You go, go ahead and rob me. You see what I do with that idol. I'll break his neck when I get back and people wouldn't touch them. Oh, sorry, no. Wait. Say hi to my so barney for me when you get back. Right? So, nobody would touch them. But if, if the idols were gone, everybody would mess with them. That entire status is it disappears overnight. They can't afford to let go. So la ilaha illallah for them was a really problematic statement. It wasn't just a matter of theology for them. It was much bigger than that. La ilaha illahu Al qayyum. Allah adds the 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 living الحي. And you know the al here, what it does is is it's it's adumujud al al it denies the existence of any other. It's like he's saying he is the living. There is no life outside of him. All life that exists is, a, is because of him. That's Al-Haydi. The, the Alif has that benefit here. Al-Qayyum. Al-Qayyum is the Mubalagh, the hyperbolized form of Qa'im. Qa'im. Al-Qayyum is a rare hyperbolized form. The one who continually and is extremely engaged in keeping things standing. qa'im ala shay'in, someone who's watching over something and making sure it stays intact. You know when you have a delicate flower or a delicate plant and the farmer has to make sure that it stays intact, he has to put a stick in the ground and it wraps around it and stuff and he still has to take care of it all the time? This is qa'im. I'll give you an example of when I explain to kids what qa'im is. I have my kids put like blocks on one on top of the other. And now there's like 20 blocks. Stable or unstable? It's, stable. it's unstable. And then I let the baby out from the crib. Baby sees blocks, what does he do? Destruction time. You have to be qaim ala this block. You have to watch over the Don't let it fall. It's very fragile. And they have to make sure from every angle. And they can't even step on the ground too hard. Because you know if they step on the ground too hard, it'll shake and it'll fall. This is qaim ala shay. You're watching it from falling apart. Allah is Qayyum. Constantly watching over all of existence that it wouldn't fall apart. It's constantly. If He doesn't do, if He's not Qayyum. If someone Qa'im is temporary, Qayyum is excessive and it's permanent. It's all the time. So it's a dis at the same time. This is, so Allah is the source of all life and He maintains all life and all existence and all harmony. This is Al-Hayyul al- Qayyum. Now understand this ayah will have multiple sentences and they're all they're all predicates. They're all khabar. And the Mubtada, the subject of all of those sentences, is Allah. The first sentence is Allah la ilaha illahu. Allah al-hayy al-qayyum. Allah la ta'khudhu silatul walanoum. Allah lahu ma fil-samaati wa ma fil-ard. Allah man zal-ladhi yashfa'u inhu illa bi It's like that. All the sentences go back to Allah Azza wa Jal. Another beautiful thing you'll notice about this ayah: there'll be twos of everything. So many things are mentioned in twos. First of all, Allah, there's no one to be worshipped except He, two attributes, al hayy and al-qayyum. Then He says, لَا تَأْخُذُهُ سنة. And you know, when someone's watching over something, like a guard, watching over something, what happens to security guards all the time? They fall asleep. You know, my, my friend had a security guard job, guard job, the best job he ever had. He said, the best sleep of my life. He studied for his entire college like career, didn't go to the library, he's by himself, nobody bothers him, he's got an internet connection, there's CCTV over there nobody's looking at, him. he's just doing his homework and he gets some sleep and he can... whatever. Guards are known for falling asleep. Allah says, لَا تَأْخُذُهُ سِنَةٌ He's alive and he's watchful and slum, sleepiness, drowsiness, sina is what comes before sleep. And it happens because when you're exhausted, when you're tired. If you're watching over something, you're guarding it all the time, you can get tired, that's why they have shifts. Allah says for him he doesn't get tired he doesn't even get the the, the whiff of sleepiness wala know nor sleep itself and by the way we learn in, in um, sunnah tradition when we wake up from sleep what do we what dua we make alhamdulillahilladhi ahyana ba'dama amatana sleep is a form of death but Allah has already established himself as the all living permanently living. So even the, the, the resemblance of death, which is sleep, doesn't even come close to him. لَا siratun سِرَةٌ وَلَا نَوْمٌ Nor any sleep. And you know the line between لَا وَلَا نَوْمٌ implies those two things together or by themselves never come to him. If you say لَا siratun سِرَةٌ وَنَوْمٌ If you just don't put a la in the middle, you know what that means? Both, if they come together, it doesn't get him. But it might get him one at a time. So you put la and la, because the, whether they come together or apart, they can never get to him. Those two things will never happen to him. And uh, why should he watch over everything? When you watch over something, and you know, is there a difference between someone who watches over things they own and someone who watches over things they don't own? You ask your friend to look over your car, take care of your car for the weekend, or he'll take care of it all right. Right? Look, if you could start it after the weekend. If it's not yours, you don't take care of it well. If it's yours, you take extra care of it, and the more you value something, the more you take care of it. Allah Azza wa Jalla values His creation, He loves His creation, and He tells us what motivation does He have to watch over it like this, to preserve its life like this. The next part of the ayah tells us, Allahu samawati wa ma fil ard. He exclusively owns whatever's in the skies and whatever's in the earth. Look at the word ma. Ma is what the Arab call ashmal. It's more inclusive ashmal means more inclusive. The word man is only used for living things, or intellectual creatures, like human beings, jinn, angels. Ma includes them and other things. So the more comprehensive, whatever and whoever, that's how I would translate that. Because when I say whatever, then you might just think it's for the objects only. But the Ma includes the man. So whatever and whoever exists inside the skies and the earth, he has inclusive or exclusive ownership of them now when he has exclusive ownership over everything who's left to come and make a case if he's the owner of everything the one in trouble is his property and the one who's trying to get the guy out of trouble is also his property you know an equal can make a case understand this point there are two bosses in a company there are two owners in a company equal 50% owners One boss says, fire me. I'm the secretary. One boss says, fire me. The other boss says, no, 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 actually, he's good. Give him another chance. So the one boss who's angry might even say, you know what? Okay, just because you're saying it, you're my equal. We're partners. I trust you. I'll take your word for it, right? When there's an equal, you might take their opinion more. And you might back off and say, you know what? I'll give this guy another chance. There is no equal to Allah. Everyone other than Allah is owned by him. Who's going to? Then there's manva not Maniladi allathee yashfa'u, man dha means who dare, who dare. You know like if there's a, I, I give you these funny scenarios so you can understand these words better, okay? So not, not because they're part of a tafsir I read. <laughs> there's some wrestler and he beat all his opponents. And he's standing in the middle of the ring and he says, who else? Who's gonna fight? Man Who's gonna be the one? He won't say maniladi. He'll say, "Manda is challenging." Is Manda Allah is challenging humanity. Who's going to come and make shafaq? Anyone want to come make a case? Who's going to make a case for somebody else? Who's out there? Anyone Ch- challenging? Then there's can be considered short for Hada. Now Hada is a pointing word, means this. But ha is considered tanbih It's there to add extra attention to the word. Getting rid of it, the original word is just the. It's just the. If you take that meaning of it, then it says It means who is this? That's going to make shafa'ah. It's like Allah is pointing at these idols and saying, who are they? You think this is going to make shafa'ah for you? You think this is what's going to you know uh, uh, save you before me? That's the other meaning of it. Who is the one who's going to make a case? with him. bi his permission. Even the messenger does not open his mouth until Allah says, you may speak. And even when Allah gives permission, he has to say the only thing that is right. He can't make stuff up just to win a case. You know lawyers do that all the time, right? They say whatever it takes to win the case. Even when Allah gives him permission to speak, he can only speak what Allah has given him permission to say. He'll say the right thing hundred percent. And that 100% will include, he will make a case for some people, and he'll make a case against some people. So this is, إِلَّا this بِإِذْنِهِ is, uh, uh, Then he says, يَعْلَمُ مَا بَيْنَ أيديهم وَمَا خَلْفَهُمْ This is so awesome how Allah adds this. You know, Shafa'ah, making a case for someone, a lot of times it depends upon what the one who is trying to protect someone knows. They'll come to the boss and say, Boss, I know he came late, but he's good. I know him, I know him for a long time. You don't know what I know. Who's going to come say that to Allah? He knows what's in front of them and what's behind them. Who's going to come and say, I know a back story. I know the record looks bad. I know the transcript looks bad. But there's more to this student. It's not just the bad scores. There's more, he's hardworking, he does his homework, he stays up late at night trying to review. Yes, he doesn't get it, but I know he's good. I know he's good. Who's going to come try to make a case like that before Allah? He already knows. What is right in front of them. And what's behind them means, he knows what's obvious and what's not obvious. He knows the present and the future, and he knows the past. Nobody will come and tell Allah something he doesn't already know. And that's the entire hope of a Shafi'ah, to be able to tell the one who's about to punish, listen, you don't know something I think you should know before you consider punishing. Who's gonna come and do that? Then on top of that, the Shafi'ah, the one who wants to make Shafa, hopes that they know something. Or they, they, they can bring some new information that will save the case. And Allah adds, not only do I know everything you're about to tell me, I know things you don't know. And they have no way to encircle, encompass anything that He, is, he has in His knowledge. <laughs> not only do, you, do I know what, everything you're about to say, but I know more about him. Even the goods that you didn't mention, I know those too. And when I've decided to punish him, I've taken everything into consideration. The things you thought of saying and the things you didn't think of saying. And the crimes you know of and the crimes you don't know of, I know all of them. وَلَا يُحِيطُونَ بِشَيءٍ مِنْ عِلْمِهِ Illa بِمَا masha'ah. So Allah says, and they have no way to encircle anything of his knowledge except for whatever he may want. إِلَّا بِمَا masha'ah. There's a very powerful understanding and lesson in our Tawheed, in our belief in Allah, in our Iman in Allah. We have no way to encompass certain things that Allah knows, except the little droplets He might give us. What is the Ruh? The human being will exhaust his studies in psychology. Before it used to be philosophy, then it evolved into psychology. All these, effort, all these different schools of thought, universities, researchers, trying to figure out what is the human personality. You know, there's still no consensus, consensus on what human personality is. There are multiple definitions in psychology. There's no one agreement. Because the human personality is rooted in the Ruh. And Allah says, وَمَا أُوتِيتُ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ إِلَّا قَلِيلًا You haven't been given with knowledge, except from knowledge except very little bit. You don't have a lot. You've been given very little. Allah knows so much more about the Akhirah than He told us. We know very little. Allah knows so much more about our own selves. we know about ourselves. People go to to hypnotists and people go to psychiatrists and figure out what's going on in my head? Why do I have these thoughts? Why do I have that weird dream all the time? People don't even know themselves. Allah knows them better than they know themselves. What to speak of anything else? And then people question Allah's wisdom. How come Allah says this? How come Allah says that? How come he made Hellfire? How come he made Paradise? How come he put this in Paradise? How come he put in, didn't put that in Paradise? How come he doesn't mention this in the Qur'an? How come he mentions that in the Qur'an? Allah says, you've been given very little. And just because I haven't mentioned it doesn't mean that it's not been taken care of. You just have to admit the fact that you know very, very, very little. And whatever little you know is because Allah wanted you to know. Otherwise you wouldn't even have that. إِلَّا بِمَا وَسِعَ كُرْسِيُهُ السَّمَاوَاتِ his throne, his kursi, expands to the skies and the earth. And you know, the moment you hear that, you're like, what does that mean? What throne? How does that work? Does that have four, four legs, like a chair? Or? What kind of throne is that? You know the answer to that question is the part of the ayah right before. illa mashaa." They don't have any way to encircle his knowledge except for very little that he gives them. And he tells them, now he has a throne. And then you hear he has a throne. Yeah, Allah, I don't know what that is, but I believe it. He set our attitude straight before He said it. And so when people try to go and get into that discourse, they're missing the point of the ayah. The whole point of the ayah is there are some things you don't know, don't get into them. You can't know that stuff. samawati his, wal His throne expands, it, its expanse is the skies and the earth. And they're guarding. Their protection does not exhaust him, does not get to him. Aada to guard over something over a long time and get tired. He doesn't, that doesn't get to him. Wa huwa al And of course Allah mentions at the end, he is al ali the high, the ultimately high. Of course if his throne is, is expansive, of the skies and the earth, then he's above the throne, he's above, he's high. And how great he is, what a great throne he has what a colossal throne he has so the surah began the ayah began with two names al hayyul qayyum ends with two names al aliyul and both, four attributes now four attributes of allah every bit of this ayah you read you appreciate those four attributes over and over again so for example allah la illahu two things al al qayyum and al al azim la sinatun wa because he's Al-Hayyul Qayyum and because he is Al-Aliyul Azeem. And only he can own it. Al-Hayyul Qayyum. Everything is continuing to exist because he's alive and he's keeping it. And how greatly he's keeping it together. Al-Aliyul Azeem. Who's going to come and make shafa'a with him? He's the, he's the all-living. He's the one who will grant life. He's the one who maintains and, and gives validation. And who will come before this high king? Al-Ali, Al-Azim, who's going to dare speak? Then, Ya'alabuna bayna adim wa ma khalfahu, al al azim Al-Hayyul Qayyum, al al azim Over and over and over again, these attributes of Allah are highlighted. And now, inshaAllah, now that we've, we've got at least a cursory look at, you know, this, this powerful ayah, see how everything after this ayah is going to be connected. This is going to be the central message of the rest of this surah. And how everything, much of it is going to be tied to this one ayah.